This is Transformation Ground Control. Your source for all things business, technology, strategy, and change. If you're growing your business, leading change within your organization, or undertaking any sort of operational or technology change initiative, this podcast is for you. This show covers what you need to know about digital transformation, organizational change, operational improvement, and business growth. Five, four, three, two, one. And now, here's your host, Eric Kimberly. Hello, welcome to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 87. This is the podcast that has everything to do with digital transformation, including the people, process, technology, and strategy, size of change. You can find new episodes every Wednesday on all the audio podcast platforms, as well as LinkedIn, YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter. Uh, With me, as always, is our co-host, Kyler Cheatham. Kyler, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here today. Absolutely. Glad to be here with you and glad to be here with the audience. We've got a, a great show for you today. Uh, as I mentioned, episode number 87, we're going to start off with some hot and interesting topics today. We're going to get into the expandability of artificial intelligence. We're going to start off with that. We're going to talk about student software tracking, uh, just to terrify all of the uh, university and other uh, types of students that might be listening into this podcast. And uh, we'll get into the case study or a case study of infrared imaging technology, as well as Hyperloop Hoopla. And I have no idea what that fourth one's going to be about. So it's going to be a big surprise for, for all of us. Kyler is going to throw a curveball at all of us, including me, uh, when we get to, to that one. So that'll be the hot topics we start off with later in the show. We're going to have a, a really interesting panel discussion with several of our teammates here at Third Stage Consulting who are going to be on a panel discussion with, with me talking about software selection best practices. So uh, what are the things to be aware of and the, the way to think about things when it comes to evaluating and selecting any sort of enterprise technology, whether it be ERP systems or CRM, HCM, supply chain management, business intelligence, or whatever technology you might be interested in, what are some of the best practices and lessons learned for evaluating and choosing that technology? And then we're going to have another panel discussion later, the third major segment of the show, where we bring in a panel of CIOs. And this is actually a really interesting panel discussion that you facilitated recently, Kyler. Um, of CIOs throughout the world. And this was part of our uh, digital stratosphere event that we hosted for EMEA uh, for Europe, Middle East, and Africa. And we gathered, or you gathered, CIOs from all over the world to talk about uh, the modern CIO and what today's CIO looks like and how it's different than CIOs of years past, what skills are needed and how the role is evolving, all that sort of thing or all that sort of stuff. So we're going to play you a clip from that uh, session uh, later in the show, but before we do that, let's uh, get to the the hot topics here. What have you What have you got for us here, Kyler? Yeah, absolutely. And not to correct you, but it is the explainability of AI that we're looking at. Not, I just don't. I'm not going to tell you how to expand AI because I'm not qualified, but I might be able to tell you how to explain it. So, um, this what's is funny is really- now that you say that it, it, made, it made total sense when I said it. But now that you're saying, correct me, I, I don't know how I missed that. But yes, thank you. That's fine. Maybe, not maybe you'll tell us how to expand AI because I'm not, <laughs> I'm not ready for that. <laughs> right. But this really interesting research study is from MIT um, in their information systems research. 
And basically what it talks about is the researchers identify four characteristics of artificial intelligence that can make it hard for stakeholders to trust them. So the bulk of this research was done around the pain points of getting executive alignment around emerging technologies within a digital transformation. So I'm going to take you through all four of these, and I kind of want to, um, you know, just unpack what what that looks like or your feedback around them. Um, so the the first uh, issue is unproven value. So because artificial intelligence is so new for a lot of organizations, it doesn't have an extensive list of proven case studies or a lot of you know industry verticals in which that it's seen success. Uh, so what they're suggesting is that companies need to create a value formulation practice. And basically that shows how people substantiate AI is a good investment um, and how that can become appealing to stakeholders. So that's the one. And then the other one is just the model transparency. So as we all know, artificial intelligence relies on a complex algorithm of math and statistics, and it can be hard to tell if that model is actually producing accurate results and is compliant and most importantly, ethical. Um, so to address this, they recommended that companies should develop a decision tracing practice, which helps actual AI teams unravel the mathematics and computations behind how the model works and convey those to the decision makers so they can really see how that works through kind of like diagrams and charts. So those are our first two. And our third one is really interesting, and this is called model drift. So basically, an AI model will only produce results in which it's as good as the data it's given. So it's given biased data, it's going to produce biased results. Uh, and these models can drift and shift over time, meaning they can start producing inaccurate results if the world changes or incorrect data is given to the model. Um, so they recommend a bias remediation practice, and this basically helps AI teams address model drift and bias by exposing how models reach decisions to stakeholders um, so they can detect and plan around those unusual patterns, identify and address them. The last one is mindless application. So this means AI, AI, excuse me, AI model results are not definitive and treating them as definitive results can be risky especially if they're be being applied to new case studies, context, or around the business in general. So there still needs to be that human component of utilizing that information in decision-making. So I thought that was a, a really interesting piece of research to kind of showcase how we explain AI, specifically the needs of the organization to the executive team. So I'm excited to kind of get your feedback on that. Yeah, well, I think it it's interesting because I, I know you said the headline was sort of explainability, um, but I guess in, as you were describing all of that, it, it sort of exposed some of the challenges of AI. And, and I was taking notes as you were you were talking there, and uh, everything from the bias to the uh, lack of transparency, the model drift, you know, all those things you just mentioned are uh, symptoms. I think of the fact that people maybe don't fully trust AI, and and I think it's a uh, it, I don't know why I thought of this. Maybe it's because I have kids that are in junior high or middle school and high school right now, but it made me think about how, you know, when you learn, when you're growing up or you're in school or university, you, you learn math, right? You, you learn how to do things that a calculator could just do for you or a computer do for you, but you still learn how to do it so that you, 
you know, it makes sense. And I wonder if that's sort of the mentality as humans, you know, we, we don't fully trust a computer unless we know where that data is coming from and how it's making decisions. And we, and we have, we have to trust it, you know, we have to trust that it's, it's, uh, uh, appropriate. And I think it's probably, that might be a healthy thing. You know, I think, um, not totally giving up control to AI algorithms and stuff like that is, you know, that's probably not the right answer either. Um, but, uh, I like how you outline some of the ways that we can overcome that potential fear or resistance or distrust or lack of value, as you mentioned, uh, within AI. Absolutely. Very interesting. Yeah, that's a, a really good point to, um, you know, having those checks and balances around monitoring the programs and understanding the basics of how they work and not just plugging them in. Um, it actually reminds me, I saw a funny meme the other day, a, a funny image that um, said, oh, it's another Tuesday without using the Pythagorean theorem. <laughs> yeah. Maybe next Tuesday. So, But it is important having those fundamentals around how it works, especially if you're trying to make a business case around how it would be valuable to your organization. So definitely really interesting research there. Yeah, and I think it's a good reminder that AI and, and technology in general is not perfect. It never will be, and it certainly isn't now with AI being sort of an emerging up and coming sort of technology. So I think it's good to, um, you know, really augment it with human thought. You know, we can't, we can't forget to think, you know, in this whole process of deploying new technologies. Absolutely. Um, and, and speaking of new technologies, this, uh, this new software that basically tracks students, it's not as scary as it sounds. Um, thank goodness. And it mostly focuses on a U.S.-based startup here um, in the United States out of North Carolina that has partnered with hundreds of public school districts and thousands of students to help them actually track their records. Um, and before I kind of researched this, I, I didn't realize that so many public school districts across the globe had a real problem tracking where their students were going, especially those elementary students after COVID hit and understanding how we we get in front of this education gap that, that COVID-19 created because our students were out of the classroom and we went through a forced transformation to e-learning systems that we might not have really tested or or understood their impact. Um, so basically the company takes all of the data from the school records and it's, it's actually called um, Scrib Transfer. Uh, and then it moves the transfer of the file throughout an online portal throughout all of the diff different school districts um, so that they can track where did this student go? Why did they leave a public school? Those types of, of different um, data points. And I, I thought it was an interesting way um, and an, another showcase or case study example of a, a seasoned or traditional infrastructure that really needs a baseline technology that has integration through different subcategories such as school districts. Uh, so interested to hear your your thoughts on that, um, you know, the standardization of something that is so sacred like education. Yeah. And it, since you were just talking about AI, I couldn't help but think about the machine learning aspect of it and looking for patterns in the data to see, you know, if there are certain trends in certain schools or certain classes or whatever that, that um, are, are being picked up by the technology. But I think it's just a, um, another reminder that technology and automation can be used in so many creative ways. Um, and it's, it's, uh, interesting to hear some of these, this one included, but many of the use cases you bring up on the show every week is just a good reminder that technology can do so many different things. If we really think outside the box. 
Yeah, or, you know, we're able to kind of disrupt a, a very traditional industry, which happened through e-learning, right? But hopefully there's other efficiencies and optimizations that we can utilize to service uh, our, our public entities and make sure that, you know, we are protecting students and making sure that we're able to provide that education through filling any gaps. But I think there's lots of room for not only a baseline software, which, you know, reading this, it's like, I why doesn't this exist? Why didn't this exist 10 years ago? Those types of things. Uh, but imagine adding like autonomous processes or automation into these different pieces so that we could ensure that, you know, students are, are simply getting the education that, that they really have a fundamental right to. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. Yeah. And another kind of emerging trend that I thought was really interesting that I wanted to unpack here is the, the use of infrared imaging technology. And I just want to give you some stats because I wasn't aware of the growth of this specific technology um, in the U.S. market. It's estimated at $2.4 billion in 2022, while China is forecasting uh, $603 million by 2026. So basically, uh, they're seeing, they're trajectorying, uh, trajectorying, trajectorying? There's a high growth tra trajectory. <laughs> Let's try that. <laughs> trajectory. It's Ron Burgundy time, right? Um, so basically... Uh, in by 2026, the forecast is it will grow over 8%. Um, and it's looking at Japan, uh, Europe, and Germany that are, are focusing on this big growth. And so I thought we might talk about the utilization of, of infrared technology and what that looks like. Uh, so these robust opportunities and the grow in demand are often in the non-industrial sector a lot of times. So that's the medical device, the imaging technology, x-rays, MRIs, those types of things. But we've seen an immersion into actually the manufacturing or warehouse management area. So infrared cameras are being now used for plant inspections. Uh, and it's a very high quality way of monitoring all possible faults that may cause accidents or threats to safety of its employees through efficiencies and technology that's not going to put them in harm's way. So these also integrate with those predictive maintenance that we talked about a lot of times through sensors and provide those efficiencies in inspection without having to contract or interfere with the normal daily operations and risk maintenance personnel. Um, so knowing that, you know, obviously you're an expert in technology manufacturing, I thought that this was a really interesting use case of a technology that's very prominent and has been well established in one industry, but might be moving into uh, a different cross vertical industry, such as manufacturing. Yeah, I think it's there's a, a few industries that come to mind that could really benefit from this. You mentioned manufacturing, obviously, but um, utilities and energy companies are um, are prone to you know high maintenance and operation maintenance repair and operation cost. So I, I wonder if you could use infrared to to maybe be more predictive in where the maintenance needs to happen before something breaks. Um, same with anything that involves like big complex assets that are being deployed, you know, um, throughout the field or whatever. Um, so I think that's a that's a super interesting technology. I wasn't aware of that that use case. 
Yeah, absolutely. I think it's a, a, a great thing to ask our audience about too. It's just a reminder, if you are watching this um, on any sort of platform, audio or visual, you can leave um, some feedback in the comments and we'll come back and kind of address that. So if you know or are using infrared technology, we'd love to hear about kind of your experience with it. Yeah. And then finally, we have the Hyperloop hoopla. So do you know what the Hyperloop is? I don't. I mean, I feel like I should, but I do not. That's what I thought when I I read about this. But basically, um, it's a concept. It's called Virgin Hyperloop, um, then known as Hyperloop One. They're one of the companies that have pioneered it. And um, what this is, is it's a vacuum technology that is supposed to transport people via pods between cities at speeds that rival air travel. so it's over about 600 miles per hour. So uh, they actually have a testing facility outside of the Las Vegas here in the United States, which I, again, never knew, uh, where two employees traveled in a full-scale vacuum tube at 107 miles per hour um, on a 500-meter track. Um, so basically, this this was a very hot topic and was something that raised a ton of capital Uh, back in 2020. However, the challenge with this technology that uh, globally other uh, like bullet trains and things like that, that we see within our um, global marketplace has been able to crack here domestically in the United States. We've struggled with that. And basically the, the central issue is that there is no existing infrastructure for creating a hyperloop. Uh, that means constructing miles and miles of tubes, stations, uh, you know, acquiring transportation rules, governance, regulation standards, um, and then uh, convergence into sustainability. So is it hurting the environment? Is it helping the environment? Those types of things. So that is the, the hoopla around the hyperloop. Uh, so I first wanted to know if you've ever heard of it because I had never and I was fascinated by it. Uh, but also just understanding a, a technology that does need this amount of capital and transportation to be able to establish even uh, infrastructure to work, I think is is really interesting. Yeah, that is. It's super interesting. All, all this is completely new to me. So uh, you did not disappoint in terms of the level of uh, like to keep it teaching fresh. us something new and interesting. You're right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just trying to think, yeah, I get my mind around how you, you know, how that hits the mainstream or how that becomes a more widespread technology. That's, that's what I'm trying to get my head around. Yeah, it's very interesting. Um, and we, we, uh, we've seen things like this kind of, you know, to some extent work within um, other kind of global economies that are more technology based and that focus in public transportation. We all know from traveling abroad that the U S is, is miles and miles, meters and meters, I should say, behind other um, European countries or Asian countries when it comes to the use of public transportation. Uh, But it's something that you you think about when we talk about the need for clean energy and wonder if that's something that we'll continue to see emerge in the use of this kind of electric uh, uh, vacuum technology, um, or if that will be something that's kind of shut down on on the capital side. Yeah, that's interesting. I don't, I don't have a good answer for you, but that is an interesting question. 
<laughs> well, you know, um, you're going to tell us how to expand AI throughout this episode. So don't even worry about it. <laughs> right. Yeah, um, we'll get to that, that some point in the episode. Right, right. And so I, I think we're going to take a step back and talk about software selection, which obviously is one of the main um, the main fundamentals, right? If you're going to in, implement any sort of emerging technology or any technology in general, you really have to go through the due diligence of understanding your system, understanding your business in order to be successful. Yeah. Yeah. And, it, and it's going to be a, a great panel discussion where we'll cover that exact topic of how to identify the right technology, how to prioritize or, or compare different technologies the things to be thinking about, the common mistakes that organizations make, <clears throat> excuse me, those are some of the things that I want to cover here in the panel discussion. Um, so we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll have a handful of other people from the third stage consulting team who are going to help us unpack that topic. So uh, we'll take a quick break. You're listening to Transformation Ground Control. We'll be right back. Hi, this is Eric Kimberling, the CEO of Third Stage Consulting, and we recently hosted our Digital Stratosphere 2022 virtual event. It's three days of packed content related to digital transformation best practices, about 16 or 18 different workshops and different speakers that are presenting on different topics, everything you need to know about transformation. The, the bad news is you, if you miss that event, the event's over. The, the live event already happened. But the good news, if you've missed it, or even if you did attend it and you want to see replays or you want to catch the sessions you missed, you can do that now by going to stratosphere2022.com. Go to stratosphere2022.com, register. All you have to do is put in your, your name and email address, uh, just a few fields. You get immediate access to all the recordings and the recordings cover everything from digital strategy, um, software selection, organizational change, process improvement, architecture, data migration, cloud, trends in the industry, um, how to avoid failure, some of the legal aspects to think about, contractual aspects to think about as it relates to your transformation. All that is stuff that you'll get by registering for Stratosphere 2022 replay. And again, go to stratosphere2022.com and you can listen to all the replays of all the workshops that you might have missed at the event. So hope you check it out and uh, thanks for listening. We'll see you soon. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 87. My name is Eric Kimberling, here with Kyler Cheatham. You can find new episodes every Wednesday on the audio podcast platforms out there, as well as LinkedIn, YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter. Excited for our panel discussion that we're going to have here to talk about enterprise software selection best practices. So covering all the lessons, learns, and tips, tips for evaluating and selecting enterprise technology to support your digital strategies. And we're going to bring on a handful of guests from the third stage consulting team. Uh, we're going to bring on Greg, Wayne, Nate, and Khalid, all of whom, by the way, have been on past episodes, maybe not in this exact panel format, but they've all been on the show in the past. So let's uh, introduce the panel to start. Greg, thank you for being here today. Hey, great to be here and a very important topic to, uh, to discuss today. So looking forward to it. Absolutely. Thanks for being here. We also have Nate Stroer, uh, who is our practice lead here at Third Stage Consulting in the U.S. Um, Nate, thanks for being here. Uh, thank you, Eric. And, and uh, just like Greg said, excited to talk about these uh, topics and have a lot of real world experience over the last three or four months. So we've got a lot of great stuff to discuss today. Absolutely. 
and you, you have, you've done your fair share of software selection. So it'd be, be curious to get your, your feedback as, as well as Greg's and, uh, and uh, Wayne Holtham, who is our executive vice president in charge of our third stage Asia Pacific office, um, who handles all of Asia Pacific and is based out of Brisbane, Australia. So Wayne, thanks for being here today or this evening. Yeah, here thanks, Eric. And uh, yeah, software selection is uh, is the starting point. And uh, one thing that's very dear to my heart in the sense of if you do it right, you get a great outcome. Right. Absolutely. And then we also have uh, just joining us. I'm not sure if he's on the feed or not, but Khalid Morris, who's our uh, director of strategy and transformation here in our U.S. office. Um, Khalid, welcome to the show, assuming you're connected. I am connected. It's good to be here. I'll be on camera here in a second. I just have to transition computers because this one isn't working. So give me a sec there, but happy to be here. Thanks for being here. And uh, in the meantime, it'll be a mystery of what Khalid actually looks like. So we'll, uh, we'll, we'll leave the audience guessing. We'll leave them on their, on their toes here uh, while, we, while we get started. So uh, thank you all for being here. And thanks, everyone, for, for chatting or, or dropping in the chat where you're joining from today. Um, looks like we've got a, a great turnout here from everywhere from Atlanta, Georgia to uh, Winnipeg, Canada, Grand Junction, Colorado, Oxford, UK, Sydney, Australia, uh, Toronto, Canada, Kuwait, Argentina. So uh, great, great audience representation from from really all over the world. And um, I'm sure there's others that haven't mentioned where they're from as well um, on the on the line here today. So uh, today's topic, as we mentioned, is is to talk about software selection, software evaluation. How do you find the, the best software uh, for your organization? How do you evaluate the technology? What are some of the pitfalls? Uh, what should we be thinking about? All that stuff is really what we want to get you to here today. And again, if you in the audience have questions related to evaluating technology, selecting technology, um, general trends within the software space, anything along those lines, please feel free to chime in at any point here. We're watching the chat as we go. Um, so I guess just to start, I wanted to start and set the context here by kicking things off with a general question for Wayne. And that question is, why is a software selection process so important in general, if we just sort of start there? That's a really good question, Eric, because I suppose for many organizations, it's the first time they get a chance to reset the way they do things. And, and technology is one of those things that allows them to be able to do things a different way, um, you know, operate differently, uh, improve the way they operate. Um, and, and that software selection, if we do it right, it allows us to reset what we need uh, for the context we're actually in and allows us to be able to then work with changing our business up to the point of meeting what we require today and what we're going to need for the future because you know uh, software isn't just the uh, thing we buy and then um it, it lasts it's around with us for a number of years and so um it's it's a it's one of those areas that's to me is the reset and if we if we look at uh, everything that's changed in our business what we want to achieve in our business starting with good software selection is that's that that's that point yeah yeah absolutely yeah, it's a, it sort of sets the trajectory for a transformation for sure. It sets you on a path um, towards towards that transformation, and obviously getting that path right and making sure it's aligned with your needs is such a such an important thing. Yeah, and it may well be the trigger that uh, people need to actually do that change, but uh, but it definitely is one of those things that's uh, a good thing to uh, to uh, start off with with the view of um, where you're going to uh, end up, sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, Greg, Nate, or Khalid, anything you'd add to that as far as why the selection process is so important itself? Well, I think that uh, I'd like to weigh in a little bit. 
we're uh, we're looking at uh, making a, a digital transformation for most organizations that's going to happen once in every decade, right? So you want to make sure that you get it right, that you go into this with the right idea, the right objectives for the organization, clearly laid out, expressed to the to the uh, to the rest of the folks that are coming coming along for for the initiative and then enter into a selection process with the idea that that's going to lead to a, a thoughtful, careful, well-planned deployment. And all of that continues to uh, extend across the, uh, the implementation and then the post go live support and, and ongoing. So all of it is a, uh, a single continuum and, and not to forget that. Yeah, yeah. It's a great point. Rather than viewing it necessarily as discrete, separate milestones or separate activities, they're they're all um, interrelated, and certainly it's an ongoing journey for sure. Right. Yeah. Great. So, Nate, why don't I turn it to you for a second and ask? You know, what are? It sounds simple enough as we talk about selecting and evaluating software. You know, if you haven't done it a lot before, or if you're not familiar with all the options out there in the marketplace, choosing software sounds easy enough uh, on the surface, at least. But what are some of the common pitfalls that organizations face when they when they go through this process and some of the challenges we should be aware of? You know, I think uh, I think the probably the top two that, that are the best to discuss today. Um, number one is is underestimating the effort it takes to select a software. It, the, the folks that you traditionally will get involved in this process are going to be some of the more valuable resources to the organization. They're going to be likely very busy. They're going to be pulled in a lot of different directions. And it's really important that you make sure that when you're going through not only this process, but the whole digital transformation process, that you're realistic about the amount of resources you'll be able to donate to the project. And then also making it clear to the software vendors that are coming in and helping you to make this selection that uh, what your expectations are and what your timeline is. Consider holidays, consider uh, year-end closed, month-end closed for most organizations. And you also likely are making changes to other platforms as well. So it, it's really important to sit down and get a really clear, realistic view of what your timeline is, what your resources are, and what you expect from the software vendors and clearly convey that to them. I think that's really the most important. And then second of all, I think it's really important to know that um, that this is probably one of the most important decisions you're gonna make, like Greg mentioned earlier. Uh, probably every 10 years you'll be doing this, if not longer. Um, so it's really important that you choose the right software, but you're never gonna get the perfect software. And I think I've seen over the years, organizations that will sit down and they'll extend the selection process from what should normally be about a two to three month process into a six to seven month process because they're just always trying to get that perfect fit. And there's never going to be a perfect fit. You're if you if you could really get nine out of ten of your requirements fully met, you've definitely found the right software. Yeah, yeah, that's a that's a great point. That you know, if it organizations oftentimes get lost in analysis paralysis when they consider all of their options. If you if you were to you know just go Google you know top enterprise technology, top ERP systems, top HCM, CRM, whatever it is you're you're looking for. Um, you'd find tons of options. And if you go down each rabbit hole of analyzing all these different options, 
A lot of them, by the way, are options that probably aren't good fits for your organization. But if you don't know that, you know, you can waste a lot of time and resources on that. Back to your point, Nate. So I think that's a great point that you want to be be efficient about it and also be realistic about how long it's going to take and what the resources are that are there. Um, what are your thoughts, uh, Greg and Wayne? Any any additional thoughts there in terms of common challenges or pitfalls with the software evaluation process? I think one of the things is that people, um, uh, you, you mentioned the Google search of, uh, of software. Um, you know, there's lots of brands out there. There's lots of marketing. Marketing doesn't necessarily mean you're buying the best option for your, your organization. I think that's a, that's one of the areas that uh, people get caught up in is that I think buying a brand is actually going to solve their problem, whereas buying a software that suits their requirements probably gives them better bang for their buck. Right. Yeah, makes total sense. Um, now, I want to make a comment here, um, or actually refer to a comment here from Gassan, and I'm going to lead into a question from Gassan as well over on LinkedIn. Uh, he said, uh, such a fun topic, yet could open up a Pandora's box if a wrong decision uh, is made. And that's a great point. If you, if you go down that wrong path or if you, you get started down the wrong track, the wrong path on the roadmap, um, that's not a good fit for your organization, doesn't meet your objectives and needs or whatever the case may be, that can be a, a big challenge uh, for certain. Uh, but then his, his uh, you know, kind of his follow-up comment to that is, you know, people first, process second, both in green, then let's talk about software selection. So I think it's an interesting uh, point, and I, I tend to agree with this, but we'd be curious to hear what the others here on the panel think as far as that people first, process second, then you select the software. Um, maybe help us unpack that a little bit. First of all, do you agree with it? If you do agree or if you don't agree, you know, what are some of the nuances of, of of that, yeah, uh, what, are, what are your thoughts, Khalid? Maybe I'll start with you since you're on camera now. Um, can you hear me? Okay, Is, yep. uh, we can. Um, I, I I think it's important to number one realize, and I say this I don't know how many times a week, but uh, uh, it's 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 very important. These are not IT projects; these are business related projects, and uh, it's very important that you have an organizational frame for how you're going to attack um, uh, organization-wide software because uh, people are the ones that are impacted. Um, they're impacted first and technology has a way of impacting um, those individual processes. And so uh, naturally uh, you do wanna think about people, you do wanna think about uh, uh, the processes uh, and how uh, the an individual software that you're either evaluating and ultimately uh, selecting will impact uh, those two measures uh, because that's where you're going to get uh, the greatest uh, form of ROI, uh, which is uh, where we're trying to push you uh, here at, uh, at third stage. Uh, but also you're going to get the greatest disruption if, um, if things go south. So um, um, I think it's a, a, a great way to view it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. How about? Yeah. Um, if I, if I might comment the, uh, Gasson always has such great comments too. I yes. love the Pan Pandora's box idea. Right. But, uh, if, if you're not taking this from a business process standpoint or, or view, you're really missing the opportunity to get the, uh, as Khalid said, the, the strongest return on investment. And, and actually the lowest cost of ownership. And it's also going to be bringing the people along that are using the software on a, on a daily basis, right? So um, looking at people, process, and then technology, 
is is really the way to fold it into a comprehensive project that cuts across all of those pieces. Yeah. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. It sort of gives you that blueprint or that roadmap organizationally for how technology can fit into uh, the business going forward. Um, but too often we get enamored by all the cool bells and whistles and all the great cool stuff that these software vendors are creating, which is great. You know, it is great stuff, but at the end of the day, that stuff doesn't really matter. Or the only stuff that matters within that is what supports your business, your people and your processes and where you're trying to, trying to head as an organization. <laughs> great. So, um, so a lot of times, and I'll start with you on this one, Greg, because I know this is something you're passionate about, but a lot of times organizations, when they when they come to us, they'll say, we want help with our digital strategy and our enterprise software selection. And oftentimes that mindset is by enterprise software or enterprise technology, we mean single ERP system, a, a, a single system that can handle all of our needs or at least most of our needs, a core ERP system. That's what we mean by enterprise software selection. But that's not the only option out there. There's a whole, there's a lot of different options available in the marketplace in addition to sort of your traditional single uh, ERP systems. What are, in addition to ERP, what are some of the common types of software and technologies that organizations can or should be considering as part of their roadmap? Well, that's a great question. And, and, and frankly, you know, when we're looking at enterprise operations, you look at uh, the way that your organization operates today, it's, it's not a single ERP system. It's not a single vendor that's providing all of that, all of that process, right? That enablement. It's uh, a number of different technologies that work together. So in looking at a digital transformation, you really are looking at transforming your enterprise operations, including uh, a number of uh, technical uh, deployments and systems that have to work together. Um, there are a lot of interoperability considerations between different systems and components of the software solution that you're gonna to have to look at at working together. Uh, there are numerous technologies out there like Palantir that actually provides an interoperable layer that can bring a lot of those disparate systems together. Uh, many organizations are considering best of breed at this point, which might include two or more enterprise solutions for HCM, for uh, finance and supply chain. Uh, you also have to integrate systems like uh, manufacturing execution. So MES systems need to factor into that. There is uh, data and analytics. So putting together a data lake and analytics platform like Snowflake and some of the other um, options that are out there for dashboarding and reporting need to factor into that entire digital strategy, right? That, that overarching transformation that you're looking to manage through the, the entire organization. And so there are, there are a lot of other platforms and systems that need to, to work together. Um, and I've just named a few, but uh, there are many more. The other panelists have run into uh, to many of these, these other platforms as well. Wayne, I, I think that uh, you've had a lot of experience with that. Yeah, and, and uh, I, th I think in the old days, we could just put in our solution, whereas now we end up with more of a stack. And like you talk about, if we want more information, then a, a business analytics layer may be the case, so data lake and, and uh, using uh, that sort of approach. Or, you know, those areas where best of breed, where we're actually looking for something that gives us 
uh, connect connectivity, uh, whether it be um, uh, something that we want standard, we want to uh, work with, and then we want some competitive advantage in the way we actually configure other um, modules or other um, suites of products. And so it allows us to be able to get much more functionality for our organization if we consider some of those uh, ways of doing it. We're in the midst of a panel discussion here talking about enterprise software selection, best practices and tips. We have a lot more to cover, but we're first, we'll take a quick break. You're listening to Transformation Ground Control. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstageconsulting.com. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 87. My name is Eric Kimberling, here with Kyler Cheatham, and we're also here with a panel discussion talking about enterprise software selection best practices. You know, a question just building, uh, Greg and Wayne, and on what you just said, here's a question that, that builds on this. This is from John over on YouTube. Um, John asks the question here of, would you include machine data systems as well, devices and software that capture real-time data from operational technology assets? Um, that's something, you know, this whole industry 4.0 concept that a lot of manufacturers are pursuing and really trying to leverage Internet of Things and devices on the shop floor to really consolidate some of that data. Um, you know, what, what are your thoughts on that, in, not just within manufacturing, but what other sorts of, you know, outlying technologies that could be critical to a digital transformation or an enterprise software selection? What other technologies along those lines have you guys seen or maybe other industry examples? Well, there's a big trend towards uh, IT, OT conversion, uh, you know, it, it coming together as such. And so... Um, it's that thing where we are getting information from machines uh, that are operating, uh, either performing, manufacturing, um, whatever they might be doing, and actually identifying how that, how how well they're doing that, and so then incorporating it into our systems to be able to either see how well we're producing or what's causing some of those issues. And so um, it, it was one of the things where there was a, a line between them. Whereas today, technologies moved to the point where we can bring that information in and actually make it usable for us to actually change the way we operate, change the way we maintain, change the way we manufacture. And um, it, it's often it's it's about trying to get information that is usable because you can get information overload if we if we try and bring everything in. But it's about understanding what we actually need to actually make those better decisions. And that's some of the challenges when we talk about machine data systems. Yeah. Yeah. And Greg, I know you've worked within uh, the healthcare industry, which I, I suspect has a similar um, sort of interoperability uh, potential, you know, with multiple types of systems. Maybe you could unpack that a bit just to talk about what are some of those major systems that healthcare organizations, just as an example, are considering as part of their digital strategies. 
Huge consideration in healthcare. Um, to your point, the uh, clinical systems, Epic, Cerner, provide a lot of information that needs to be um, accessed and uh, really acted upon within the enterprise system. So be it human capital management, supply chain or finance, uh, the information coming from the clinical systems is, is imperative to have interoperable within those, those systems. Um, CRM is becoming very important in, in healthcare as well. So the integration and interoperability of all of those systems, bringing all of that information together, you've got such a huge haystack of data within an organization, especially in healthcare. Being able to find the needle in that haystack and then report on that so that you can take actionable steps if things are changing with the organization is, uh, is facilitated by a lot of the new interoperability pieces that are available. Palantir is just one of those, but um, there are some others out there as well. Right. And, and Khalid is, is really kind of our, our integration and interoperability expert. So, uh, so I might turn to him a little bit. I think it's a great question. I think that, uh, and it's something to really look at. I, I, I believe data is the lifeblood of um, ERP systems. And nowadays, uh, for those kinds of things, the, 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 the real question for me is where are you going to do it? A lot of ERP systems aren't positioned to analyze um, a lot of you know, machine data, um, you know, a lot of analytical data. You have to understand ERP systems are primarily transactional, um, not necessarily analytical frames. And so you really came into um, your solution architecture and your cloud structure, and you're getting into what kind of associations, um, uh, what kind of meaningful pieces of information you need to pull out of the data that you gather. Um, but systems in general, uh, the cloud structure is set up to pull data. And so you can you can get it out, whether you're dealing with machines on the shop floor, uh, whether you're kind of dealing with something um, a, a little more complex, if you need to even run algorithms, there's predictive elements to a lot of ERP systems now that they're trying to loosely uh, try and incorporate. And so it's, it's a matter of where are you storing this information? Uh, what do you need from this particular information and how you're going to pull it? And, and a lot of it kind of usually nowadays goes back to a best of breed scenario of using different tools to be able to um, uh, uh, extract from there the, the, the kinds of um, information, uh, pieces of information that you need. Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a great point. And uh, there's a, a follow-up question I wanted to ask here um, on behalf of one of the uh, attendees here, here, um, actually this one, I'll, I'll come back to you again, Khalid on this one, just because I know this is an area of passion for you and, and Nate, you might have some good feedback on this too. Um, but what about you, you mentioned before, uh, you talked a little bit earlier, I think you mentioned it sort of in passing, uh, Khalid, uh, yeah. about ROI and, and getting business value. What about the ROI figures? And this is from Slava over on LinkedIn, by the way. Um, he asked, what about the ROI figures, what is the best practice in most scoping sessions of ERP selection? I have never seen actual calculations. So you know, a lot of people don't do it. I wish they would. I, I wish more people would uh, do more business cases. We kind of get, um, uh, we see a lot of, you know, 
it's off and on. We'll see different uh, clients want business cases, but I almost wish every client wanted a business case because why wouldn't you build a business case for a massive investment uh, like software? Um, I would say best practice is to treat it like capital budgeting, really drive in and try to understand where your savings are, where your value is. Some years it'll be different per client, so it's not like it's a standard across the board. One ERP system may enable an organization to utilize a new revenue channel, um, as an example, that currently uh, they can't access uh, because uh, they're on an antiquated uh, system. So that revenue stream then becomes a part of the of the model for driving how much uh, return you're going to get on something like this. Uh, there may be missed opportunities um, in the case of, uh, you know, you're using an ERP system that is causing you to, you know, lose customers, um, um, you know, or clients, or you're not able to upsell them in ways that you want. Um, that is a revenue stream. So once you put all of the different pieces that combine your company's unique sort of circumstance and uh, what is going to drive um, additional revenue year over year. Now you sort of have a case or a setup for what this is going to cost and how much value you're going to kind of get out of that uh, from a capital budgeting uh, kind of perspective. And then you can just calculate your, your value uh, kind of from there in a more uh, traditional format. And that'll start to set up the case for um, how much this really makes sense for your organization over the course of a five-year or a 10-year term. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. How about you, Nate? Anything you'd add to that as far as business case and ROI, how to determine business benefits or potential business value in a software selection? Well, I think that the important thing, and, and Khalid hit on a little bit, but uh, I think it is really important to sit down and say, um, is, is there a return on investment? And if there isn't clearly a return on investment, it doesn't have to be a lot, but if you're not going to gain from implementing a software, then don't do it. There's, there's, uh, you know, there's time is on your side. If, if you, if you can't make a business case for it now, maybe wait till later. Um, but I, you know, I think also, um, the, to add to that, I would say <clears throat> that it's, that it's real important though, to sit down, the tangibles are very easy to figure out. You know, we'll we'll save from retiring this software. We'll save from human capital, that sort of thing. But it's also the intangibles. What what markets and what analytics are going to allow us to do in the future to put us in a position to really make ourselves better as an organization and and follow through with our vision. So, uh, yeah, I think it's important, even if it's at a very high level, do your ROI. If it doesn't make sense to do it now, put put the project on the shelf till later. Um, but then again, also sit it there and think about what those intangibles are, because that's often where organizations really kind of breeze over what the benefits are from a new system that can really be a, a game changer for an organization. Yeah. Yeah, and one, one of the things from the audience, this is a really good point I wanted to bring up related to the whole business case concept here. And that is uh, really getting in, this is from Fernando on LinkedIn. And Fernando talks about ROI calculations in a business case. Um, what should be done is continually validate that these initial equations are maintained over time and ensure that the new software continues to meet the strategic and commercial objectives of the company. And so I think what Fernando's hitting on here is a really good point, which is the business case should be used to, of course, validate and justify a potential investment in technology. But even more importantly, I would argue, is what Fernando is saying, which is that that, that same business case should also be used to drive the actual business value and the business benefits to ensure that you're getting the value you expected. 
because just deploying the technology itself is not going to ensure that you get the business case or realize the business case. In fact, most of the time, you're not going to get it right away until you modify and tweak and fine tune the way you've deployed technology, the way you're incorporating business processes into the system, the way you've handled change management, all that stuff should sort of point back to the business case. Um, and so I think this is a, a really interesting point, you know, this whole concept of benefits realization and business value realization as well. Nate, um, maybe I'll ask you a follow up just because you're also one of our, one of our change management gurus, but, but kind of building on what Fernando mentions here, as far as a business case being used as a tool to drive business value, how does, how does organizational change management factor into the software selection process, as well as just ensuring that you get business value once you've, once you've selected and implement the software? Well, I, I think it's important. And the, the point was brought up earlier. We we are, are constantly talking about people, process and technology. So I think it's really important to to think about when you're going through a selection project and when you're entering into an initiative like this, no software is going to improve an organization in itself. There's there's the people that use the software. There's the processes that support the people to uh, make the decisions in their jobs. So I, I think it's really important to look at this holistically and say, we we really need to sit down and say, where are we going in the future? How are we going to get there? And how is this software going to help us? And then take a step back and say, do we have the right processes in place? Do we have the right people in place now to use the technology currently as it stands and what the technology will enable us to do in the future? And that's really that's really tough for storm organizations to make that leap because you're so used to what you do on a day-to-day -day basis. And for some people and some organizations, they're using technology that's 15, 20, years uh, past due. So it's really sitting down and saying, okay, how do we need to change the way we do business? Do we need to put new skill sets in front of our people that are working with the technology? Or do we, do we need to hire new people that are going to enable us to take better advantage of this technology? And then really put that third piece to, of the puzzle together and say, okay, now that we know our processes, now that we have the right people in place, what's going to be the best technology to get us to where we want to go? Right. Right. And if, if, if I can add to that, uh, Eric, it's important to think about these things holistically, uh, because <clears throat> especially when you incorporate like a business case for something like this, um, I have mentioned a revenue channel. Uh, uh, but to that particular point, if you can't uh, um, implement the requirements that are going to unleash that particular revenue channel, then it's really not a part of your business case. So. It, it really kind of brings me back to the fact that software selection is connected to the actual implementation itself and that this whole frame is organization. You have sort of have to manage this process of bringing in software to your organization and then ultimately executing on it. And part of that execution is making sure, and this is really a third stage case, which is why I want to emphasize is making sure that the reasons you brought in this software are, the, are, are what is actually being implemented. I think that, that that connection has to be managed. And when you don't manage that, then you kind of get into a scenario where you're making assumptions that may or may not be the case. Yeah. I think in addition to that, adding adding that view that, you know, if we're putting in technology and where we're bringing the change management piece is bringing people back in to use that technology. And often the reason we're actually uh, going to go buy some new technology is people, you know, are using a lot of workarounds, they're using all spreadsheets and they're using those sorts of things. And the source of truth that we actually work off 
isn't really there. And so it's about, you know, working back towards how do we use technology and, and change pieces, getting people to actually trust and, and work with the processes and actually use that technology. And that's where you drive value as well, because that's, that's how you actually get uh, information to be able to make those better decisions. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's a, it's a great point. Uh, I want to come back to uh, a question from Kyler on LinkedIn. Um, and this is a great question, but it, it seems like in a software selection, understanding integrations, requirements, data organization management can be really confusing, especially with vendors and system integrators that are trying to sell you something. How do you ensure that you're getting unbiased feedback during the software selection process? What are your guys' thoughts on that? Can I, can I take that one? Because it's, it's an interesting one in the sense that when we talk about instead of enterprise, we actually have a number of different uh, vendors that are supplying us a stack as such, you know, and so uh, no one vendor actually sells you. And so, um, and, and, and often what we find are vendors are limited to what they know, not necessarily what the whole stack is going to look like. And so it is difficult to be able to get that information. And so you need to probably get some, get, make sure that you're covering all of the stack you've got, not just limit it and then expect the rest to actually take care of itself. Yeah. You know, that's a, that's a great point. I'll just, uh, if I may weigh in a little bit, the, uh, the point that Wayne makes about bringing together, you know, a number of different vendors, vendors will tell you exactly what they know about the software that they, they own and they are bringing to you. You have to have, really a, uh, a third party that's working directly for you with you on on your behalf to help cut through some of that information and make sense of everything that's that's needed to be brought together as as a holistic approach and i think that's one of the things that that we've seen especially recently with our clients that are uh, are going down the road of digital transformation looking at a number of different software systems but really needing to understand how all of those fit together and can benefit the organization in the total transformation. So um, right. just that comment. Yeah, I, I also would like to add, it's important to understand it's, it's, it's a vendor's job to be biased. I mean, they're, they're going to be biased. You have to work with them um, because you want their expertise in the application that you're bringing into your organization. Uh, they have a hard view of, about these things. I think that question really gets you, and there's multiple schools of thought in 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 this, and we we deal with this sort of question all the time uh, as you're trying to transition from selection to uh, implementation. But for me, it's very important to have a perspective. A lot of the times, organizations don't, and they walk into, okay, we have this software, we like this group. And, and they walk into those conversations with an implementer and they don't have a full perspective of what they want to do. And it's very important that you have a full perspective, not just in terms of what requirements you want to implement, but what you want that design to kind of look like, how you want that stack to sort of function. Uh, what we were just talking about as related to cloud and as related to a machine and do you want some of that machine data to sort of be incorporated within certain systems you want that you want to understand that before you talk to software vendor because the reality may be that this particular software may not have a great plan for dealing with machine data doesn't necessarily mean that that software isn't a great software for you it just means that there's a gap between what you want to do and what the software of choice actually does and the question that we like to deal with 
um, is how are you going to mend that gap? You know, this does 95% of what you want it to do. How are you going to deal with this 5%? When you have plans across the board for what you want to do as an organization, dealing with vendors is easy because you because you already know where you want to what what box you want to kind of keep them in. And you understand you're going to use a different box for this other part where you either have to do a workaround or you have to do some sort of integration or some sort of process to kind of deal with an aspect of data or process or whatever it is that you're dealing with as an organization that 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 you have to deal with this offline or you have to deal with this outside of of the of the um, uh, system of choice and there's nothing wrong with that because organizations deal with this all the time so going into these conversations with a plan is i believe something very very important i wish more people would do it we try to convince our clients to sort of do that all the time sometimes we have more success than others um, but it's it's very very important and that way you can be in front of the conversations with the vendor and how you want things to function rather than in a reactionary space where everything they're telling you you're, you're just agreeing with because you don't have a, a formalized thought around how you want to deal with this aspect of your business <clears throat> yeah no it's a it's a really good point and actually just building on on this whole thread that we're on too and it sort of gets back to the the how we go about the actual evaluation process itself. Um, and this this question is from Kyler as well over on, on LinkedIn um, and also our, our podcast co-host. Uh, she asks, who should manage a selection project within an organization to ensure interoperability is achieved? So if you look at you know sort of a cross-functional evaluation process that presumably is going to touch multiple parts of an organization, how do you, who should own that process? I mean, as, as we talk about sort of rules and responsibilities um, who, who needs to own the selection process within an organization or, or which people, if it's more than one person? Anybody but procurement. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, it, <laughs> that, that is, that is a great point, Wayne. And I think th these, these projects are traditionally owned by the IT group, but I think there's, there's, Far too many times we see organizations that let the IT group not only own the project, but run the project and run the outcome. I think it's important that it's owned by finance and IT, and but it's led by a steering committee that has cross-functional representation from all the different work streams or all the different divisions, functions, whatever you want to call it. Um, it, it's really important to note that, you know, this is this is a huge IT initiative. You need their technical understanding. You need to know where this fits in with all the other platforms. But really, everyone has to have say and everyone has to have a, a chance to show how their requirements are going to be met with the new platform. So any of those one organizations or any of those one's divisions gets too much um, say and too much power in this um selection then you're gonna you're gonna really set yourself up for failure i i think nate's hitting right on the head but uh it really does come down to governance and steering and, and uh the executive level of the organization really needs to set the pace the entire decision going forward but they have to have in input from both it and the business so an opportunity and we're seeing this all of the time with our clients where business and IT have to work together and they have to go up through those, those um, you know, governance structures that are put in place so that decisions can be made rapidly and follow principles with solutions that fit 
everyone about the organization. Um, let's start with that executive decision to even start the selection process and move forward toward the uh, organizational goals that you have for improving the way that you operate, improving the way that you deliver care in the case of healthcare. Um, you know, your movements to come through that entire uh, hierarchy of the organization from a from a government standpoint and need to put that in place right up front. Yeah. Yeah. You've got a lot of different stakeholders, a lot of different um, potentially differing opinions on what the right technology or roadmap is going to look like. How do you how do you ensure alignment? You know, if you've got if, you, if you're dealing with a with a cross-functional team of people that are making a decision of what the roadmap should look like, you're probably going to have diverse opinions, which is a good thing in general. But at some point, you've got to come to a consensus on what the path forward is. You know, what are some of the challenges you guys have seen along those lines? I mean, maybe Nate or Khalid, it might be good for one of you guys to, to start us here on, you know, how, how you overcome that. You know, how do you get that sort of consensus? You're not going to get unanimous decisions or unanimous agreement and support in most cases, at least not right away. So how do you how do you navigate diverse cross-functional groups like that to ensure that you're, you know, getting to a consensus? You know, I, I, I would say uh, uh, to start and then, you know, Nate, you can, you know, you, you may have a differing opinion or the same, but um, uh, you, you need rules, <laughs> you know, especially as you get closer to an actual implementation. When you're in the heart of an implementation, there's usually risk of escalations that are happening, problems that are occurring and you want to have a way of navigating through what do we do when this happens and do we go to level one there's a level one response there's a level two response and you can kind of sort three two one or however you want to 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 kind of word the you know final level of risk and maybe that final level level is you take it to either the executive sponsor or um, someone kind of above that, right? But there's different levels. It doesn't have to get to that point. There's a there's a level under that, and there's a level under that, and so there's a broad agreement that the group has to come to, with respect to how we're going to make decisions, how we're going to deal with problems, how are we going to deal with um, the inevitability um, that happens in projects. And the more you have that, you have that charter. When you have that. Um, those those rules in place, those escalations, I think you kind of get into less bickering and more into in sort of a natural flow, right? That should include kind of a cadence. And you can use this selection as a trial run to kind of put in part of that structure and run with it. And then as you get into implementation, it's not new. This is part of of what you you naturally do. And I think you'll have a a, a solid foundation to have a successful implementation if you do that. Yeah. yeah, I think the only thing I would add to that is um, no one's ever going to get everything they want in an implementation. And I think it's this, the, the more you can put a strong steering committee together that represents all aspects of the organization and come to an understanding that there is going to be give and take. And, you know, know knowing that um, for the most part, finance and um, <clears throat> and your governance and your controls are probably the most important thing. Once you do that and you sit down and 
and you you really come to an understanding it's it's just going to be give and take and and there's never i don't think in my whole entire career i've ever seen an implementation where every group that's represented is 100 happy with the give and take that they're putting out there but i think um as you get a flow going and as as the groups work closely together they really can figure out that that by giving a little here, it's going to benefit someone else within the organization. And that, that give and take really, you know, becomes a part of the project. Yeah. And if you have clear direction and leadership within the organization too, that, that always helps. I think a lot of times organizations struggle with that. They want to, they want to, they have the right intentions in that they want to get input from multiple stakeholders. They want to try and make everyone happy if they can. Uh, but ultimately, you're not going to make everyone happy, and, and it's pretty rare that you see sort of a unanimous agreement on, on the right path forward, which is why you need that leadership, or someone at the executive sponsor level to sort of set the the, the uh, vision for what this is going to be and make decisions and say, okay, you know, here's why we're making this decision. Here's how it's going to benefit the organization and really just laying out that case for change. Um, a lot of times organizations don't do that because they want to take more of a, call it a bottoms up or more of a flat democratic approach to digital transformation but there are times where you need even if that is your style as an organization you need that leadership and you need someone to step up and, and be that executive sponsor that can make those those sorts of decisions um as well so that's a, that's an important part of the change component in my opinion too we're in the midst of a panel discussion here talking about enterprise software selection best practices and tips we have a lot more to cover but we're first we'll take a quick break you're listening to transformation ground control If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, Contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstage-consulting.com. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 87. My name is Eric Kimberling, here with Kyler Cheatham, and we're also here with a panel discussion talking about enterprise software selection best practices. There's a couple of these questions we've already already uh, covered here. This is a, a funny comment, for, again, from uh, Gassan, which I, I'd be curious to get your, your feedback on, other than whether you agree that it's funny or not. Um, this is from Gassan on LinkedIn again. He says, vendors promise the full moon during demos, customers delighted. Then the system integrator takes over and whoops, there's no moon, only a crescent. Ouch. So uh, what are your thoughts? Is that something you, we've seen? Is, it sort of gets back to that uh, question earlier that Kyler had about how do you ensure that you are making decisions in an objective way and you're being realistic and that you you know, you know have a clear vision of what reality is going to look like? What, what are your thoughts on that, Khalid? You know, I've been on that side. You know, it's, it, it, it makes me laugh because... I was on the SI side and I was the guy trying to get to the crescent and get as far away from the moon as possible <laughs> because man, there's two sides to this, right? So the first thing I'll do is defend the SIs first. 
right? And understanding what it is that they're doing and what their job is. Uh, it's very important to understand in an implementation, we're trying to get to success. You know, the, the, you know no one, you know, wants to go through and, and third stage has, you know, Eric and Greg, you know, every, we've all been a part of these ongoing expert witness kind of cases where there's this lawsuit in place. And when you see it, you kind of see these endless implementations that never get to a success. And nobody wants that. Uh, and SI doesn't want that. So naturally, what an SI does is they get these requirements and they're trying to skinny them down into a time and cost sort of space that makes sense for what it is that they're doing. And that is their job to narrow scope. They're trying to narrow scope where they can as much as they can. And, and that's so that they can get to a success. It's okay if there's multiple phases. So they may you know, approach this and say, well, we can do this in phase one and this time. And then for phase two, we can get to these other parts. Um, and um, you know, maybe then we can, we can naturally do that. That's where the crescent comes in. To me, the full moon is all your requirements. The crescent is the face. So I'm trying to get you to what does phase one look like? What is reasonable? What can be achieved? What can we actually do? And, and so that's their job. And it's important, and this is kind of cuts into what I was mentioning earlier with respect to these things have to be managed because if you don't manage them, it's so easy to lose track. Here, you're trying to have a conversation where you're trying to get to your ROI. The implementer is trying to have a conversation of how do they narrow things down and, and exit off the hard requirements and just implement the easy ones, right? Right. So those are two different conversations. Those are two different levels. There's two different expectations there. So it's important to have proper balance and understand exactly what can we achieve now and why, What the, what have a plan in place for um, how you're going to roll these out? Are we going to roll this out for one company? Say you're a multi-entity. Let's say you have five different entities make up this one company. And as an implementer, you're you're trying to come in and say, well, we can't implement all five at once for the following reasons. Maybe it makes sense for us to just do this one company. Or maybe it makes sense for us to just do finance. And then we'll do the CRM part later or, or, or that sort of thing. So you have to have an approach that makes sense. You have to have a plan that makes sense, not just for the implementers, but for you, for the client, for the organization in terms of what their calendar year looks like, in terms of what their strategic goals are, what their long term plans are. And those are competing interests. Those are naturally going to be competing interests. And so it's important that you manage these things from selection all the way through implementation, understand what your key requirements are, understand what's driving your business case for why you wanna implement this thing in the first place. Make sure those parts are implemented. Make sure the people side of this um, is effectively implemented so that you can get to those benefits. But in the, in the meantime, you're gonna to have to go through a little chaos to get it. And part of that chaos is dealing with an implementer that is trying to narrow down scope into achievable chunks uh, for you. And in the process, every chunk is gonna be chaotic, right? So no, no one wants to go through three and four different phases, but sometimes that's the proper approach for your organization. So it's important to plan that, balance that, and, and forward through it. Right. But often the moon is created because, you know, we ask the vendor to actually demonstrate the product and they will show the best that they can show. Whereas if we drive the discussion and, and set the scripts and the scenarios that we're looking for to satisfy our requirements, all of a sudden that moon becomes an achievable one than just the moon we can't touch. And I think that's, that's sometimes where selection goes 
uh, goes off the rails is because, and, and the difficulty then is, is faced by the solution integrator because, you know, we've said the, the software vendors set this wonderful picture because this is the best you can get sort of thing without really the organization narrowing it down and saying, well, here's what our requirements are. Demonstrate those for us because that's what makes sense to us. And then we get to the point where that is actually a bit closer to be deliverable. And so, um, so that's often where we see the difference. Yeah. Traditional traditional systems integrators too work with usually a, a single vendor. And as we've talked through throughout the discussion, enterprise solutions in, can include many different systems, many different vendors. And so you may have three or four um, you know, very certified, very, very adept teams implementing different aspects of the software bringing those all together under thoughtful and and holistic program management is really an important part of this success going from selection to deployment and you don't always get the full moon right you get you get a three quarters moon that is appropriate for your for your business for your organization and just building on that point you made there greg i wanted to ask you know once you have selected software in, in I guess there's two dimensions of, of selecting software, two major dimensions. One is what is the technology that we're going to deploy? Secondly is how are we going to deploy it? What does the roadmap look like? Um, what resources do we need? What's the budget? All that stuff. Can you talk to a little bit about how, you know, assuming we've already picked the technology, we have a pretty good sense of what technology we want to deploy. What is it we do next? You know, we've made the decision. Let's just assume we've procured the software. Do we just jump in and start implementing? Do we, what do we do? How do, how do we get started on an implementation journey that sort of allows us to transition out of that selection phase, but be successful as we transition into implementation? I think there's something that goes along in parallel with the selection. As you're getting down to your vendor of choice or vendors of choice, you really need to take the organization through what we call a phase zero, which is preparation, preparedness of the organization for both, as Nate says, people, process and technology to move forward into that that implementation right you've got uh, data cleansing activities that need to occur you've got um, the organization communications that need to happen internally to let everybody know what's going on a very vital part of change management you've got to do your training planning so you've got to understand when people are going to need to to know what in order to do their jobs with the new system right so all of that, can be a, uh, a length of, of time that, that spans both the selection and pre-implementation of a matter of months to um, you know, uh, 16, 18 weeks. But you have to have that preparedness piece. And that is the transition to the full implementation that goes on. Yeah. Yeah, and I think, you know, if there's in, in sort of leading into a, sort of a closing point or, or sort of a capstone question here for the panel. Um, you know, one, it seems like a couple of takeaways here that, that I've taken away from the discussion is one is you want an objective evaluation. You want to be agnostic. You want to be, you want to be smart and you want to be looking at the right technologies that are good fits for your organization, but you want to be doing that in a way that's technology agnostic. And then once you've done that, once you've identified what the right technology or technologies are for your organization, then you, to your point, Greg, you want to transition into this implementation readiness, the phase zero, um, to make sure that now you you lay out a clear and realistic plan 
budget, um, strategy, change management uh, plan and strategy, all that stuff that's required to be sort of a blueprint and a foundation for the actual implementation. Those are, those are two of the main takeaways I had. But what other sorts of takeaways would you leave the audience with here today if, as, we, as they think about their software evaluation journeys and the process? What are, what are some of the biggest, you know, couple takeaways that you, you'd leave with the group here? Why don't we start with you, Nate? You know, I think that my biggest takeaway is um, sit down, get get the right people involved from the beginning, get a vision and really sit down. Once you have your vision, where you want to be and what the, how the technology will help get you to where you want to be, then sit down, put the right team in place, put the realistic and um, put a realistic and detailed plan in place for how you're going to make your decisions, when you're going to make your decisions and who are going to make the decisions and really be realistic about where it is that you want to be in a year. Do you want the software implemented and then work backwards and say, is this something that we really can do? Yeah, it's good advice. How about you, Wayne? I agree, Nate. I think one of the things is know what good looks like at the beginning so that when you actually work through that, those decisions as they come up, you're actually making on the basis of where are we heading sort of thing. And so so that readiness piece is important because what are we trying to achieve? What are we, you know, How is the whole organisation going to get there uh, and make those decisions? And so, um, you know, understanding wh where you're heading uh, is a good start and, and uh, knowing that before you actually are heading there is always a good thing. You know, take the map before you go on the journey sort of thing. Yeah. Good advice. How about you, Khalid? What would you leave the audience with here? Is, is it one or two takeaways or key things to keep in mind as you start a selection process? Well, I, I would say first, implementations are chaotic. And I, I've never really been a part of one. And I've done a bunch. I've never been a part of one that wasn't chaotic. <laughs> um, even when they're smooth, um, there's, there's a certain amount of chaos that's built into it. Uh, the way, though, that you really get through an implementation is by being organized. And uh, being organized early in the process matters. And so that's where the software selection part really kicks in and understanding your business, understanding what you want out of the process, understanding what deliverables you're really trying to drive for prior to an implement or an SI kind of walking through the door saves you uh, time, money and effort in the long term. And uh, it's very important that you do to sort of manage through how, uh, you know, to manage through the chaos that's coming with implementations. <clears throat> That's well said. And then how about how about you, Greg? Last last but not least, how, what takeaways would you leave the audience here with on how to get started or lessons to keep in mind? Just understanding that uh, when you're going into this, not to repeat everything that everyone said, great points from the panel, but the, uh, the, the objective of a digital transformation, right, is to improve and achieve goals within the organization that you have for that digital transformation for automation of process uh, everything that you have going forward so to start with that in mind holistically and look at different systems comprising your enterprise operations and how they work together in very um, very good alignment with your executive team is the important first step yeah yep no, that's great stuff. And I would add just one more to the list, which is to to leverage outside technology agnostic health um, where appropriate. That's where companies like Third Stage, like our company, uh, can help. That's This is a big part of what we do with our clients is helping them objectively and technology agnostically 
evaluate and select the right software for the organization. And then ultimately we help them implement uh, those solutions as well. So I think that's the key thing. Another key takeaway too, is just to be agnostic and, and have that outside agnostic expertise to help you through the process. It'll speed things up and certainly make things more, uh, more cost-effective and, and more realistic along the way as well. All right. Thanks, Greg, Wayne, Nate, and Khalid. Appreciate having you on the show here today. Great conversation as always. And thank you for the great audience participation and questions as well. Uh, there's a lot to uncover or, or unpack, I should say, within that conversation. So we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll build on and expound on some of the uh, themes and topics that we covered there in the panel discussion. But first, we'll take a but first, we'll take a quick break. You're listening to Transformation Ground Control. If you are involved in any sort of digital transformation or business change initiative, you will want to download the 2021 Digital Transformation Report. With its comprehensive overview of business and technology trends and best practices, this report is a must-have guide for any transformation project or executive team. Download this free report by visiting Third Stage Consulting at thirdstage-consulting.com. You can also visit our website to learn more about us or download independent reports, videos, and other best practices. Again, visit thirdstage-consulting.com today to learn how to take your transformation to the third stage of success. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 87. I'm here with Kyler and we just had this panel discussion to talk about enterprise software selection. What were some of your takeaways or lessons learned from that conversation, Kyler? Yeah, well, a wealth of knowledge there, certainly within that conversation. And and I love how all of you touched on kind of that phase zero importance of pre-planning. Um, and, and I wanted to kind of dig into some of the feedback from some of the, the questions we got and one of those was kind of about those um, those technology silos in the organization, or if an executive on the decision making um, panel or the steering committee or all those types of things is really kind of married to one system. Um, and we we see that a lot as as someone could say they have a background with this system, and that's kind of creates a bias in their overall a. a objections when it when it comes to selecting software. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how you can go about kind of identifying that or being sure that you're really getting a full look at all of the different options in the marketplace. Yeah, well, I think first of all, it, it's important if you can minimize the bias. Um, it's a little bit harder when you have a steering committee or an executive on a team that is biased for or against a certain system. Um, but you have to also recognize that the bias could be founded in some sort of uh, relevant point. Uh, but oftentimes it's, it's, the problem isn't so much bias necessarily in and of itself. It's more bias that's based on faulty perceptions or assumptions or whatever the case may be. Um, so I guess it depends on what kind of bias it is. But if it's a bias that's based on faulty perceptions, a lot of that is just education and, and uh, you know, being agnostic uh, in, in the approach and in the evaluation. Having said that, though, you know, sometimes a bias is, you know, even if as consultants, if we don't agree that, let's just say a, a client has a bias for a current, a current or a type of software because they've used that software in past lives or in past jobs or whatever, 
the case may be, um, that bias is based on some reality. That person within the organization knows that software. It may not be the best fit for this new organization they're at, but let's just say that's their bias. And sometimes, you know, you can try to educate, you can try to overcome those biases, but there's times where it's actually more, creates more headwinds to try and change the bias rather than just roll with the bias. Um, if it's a glaring deficiency or the bias is just completely off, then of course you, you want to fix that and educate that. Uh, but your know, bias is pretty common. I mean, it's, it's maybe not as common internally with organizations, but it's absolutely very common with, with ERP consultants in our space, which I think is part of what um, some of the major challenges are uh, in, in terms of failure rates and so many of these problems heading in the wrong direction and leading to failure, largely because the biases of the industry are leading their customers down a biased track. Yeah, that's that's such a good point. Um, and I, I think a lot of that has to do with the demos. And you talked a lot about how to kind of maximize your demos or even understand who's all in the room in those demos. And I, I think that's kind of the fundamental issue a lot of times is uh, our clients or organizations don't understand within a software selection or an implementation, each partner has a different job. And like Khalid mentioned, it's not because they're a terrible person, right? It's because they have a certain job that they need to execute on. So I think understanding all of those different agendas and identities of the partners in the room would be really helpful to um, prevent failure of just a miscommunication or misunderstanding. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You know, that, that, uh, stakeholder understanding is very important. I think, you know, to your point, another challenge with bias is when it's not widely known or it's sort of under the surface, there's some bias, but it's not, you know, I'd almost rather hear, have a client come out and say, I like product A because I used it in the past and I'd be a lot more comfortable if we just deploy that same product here at my current company. That's a lot easier to deal with than the, uh, that sometimes we get clients, people that will say that, no, no, I'm totally open to ideas. I, we want to just pick the right software, the one that's best for us, but then they have a bias for or against a certain system or systems. And um, again, bias isn't always bad, but if it's, if it's a bias that's leading you down a wrong path, and if it's a bias that's just not healthy, I guess I'd say, then, then you, you definitely want to overcome that if you can. Do you ever go into a situation where you're kind of called into a software selection or technology advisor role and really the solution is not a new technology, it's a change in existing technology or a process or how often does that happen? It happens a fair amount. Um, and in fact, that's another bias that we commonly see. I was kind of focusing my examples on biases of certain types of technology, but or certain specific software vendors, which is a very real bias. But another kind of bias is, um, for example, a company coming in and saying, coming to us to third stage and saying, hey, we want we want a new ERP system. And it's right there, you've got a bias, right? It may be a correct bias, but you, you've already have a preconceived idea of we need a single ERP system. But the reality may be, well, let's understand why, first of all, why, why do you think you need a new system? And that's something we do a lot is challenge our clients, like explain to us why, not because we think they're wrong. We just want to understand what the real root cause of the problem is. And we do find that oftentimes that the technology is not broken necessarily. The processes underneath it are broken. The data is corrupt and, and the people aren't using the system the way it was built. And, you know, you, a lot of times you find that there's other problems beyond the software itself. Um, I'd say, though, that that dynamic is becoming a little bit less common temporarily right now because so many organizations are sort of being forced 
to migrate to newer cloud technologies. So a lot of times it's just, they have no choice. They need to move to a new system, or at least they, they feel like they have no choice. Uh, but setting that aside, that kind of the current transitionary phase we're in right now in the market where so many organizations are moving from on-premise systems to cloud-based systems. If you set that aside, and once we get past this transition, we'll probably get back to that point where you're going to find a lot more situations where organizations really aren't needing new technology as much as they think they do. It's usually, or oftentimes it's more of a people or a process um, or a strategy or alignment sort of an issue. Absolutely. Uh, and, and that kind of brings me to my last question or a piece that I don't know that a lot of people understand is we talked about the, the value of an independent advisor or a partner in a software selection is to help our clients or organizations navigate the saturation of options in the marketplace. So how do you as experts at third stage keep up on all of those different um, options, especially with the emergence of best of breed or bolt-on applications, how do you how do you learn about those? Yeah, so I mean, there's certainly the qualitative understanding and knowledge that we gain being independent and technology agnostic. You know, we create um, relationships with all the major vendors in the marketplace to understand their product roadmap and you know their suite of products, which can be very confusing at times because. Um, just because you've picked a vendor doesn't mean you've picked a solution. A lot of times vendors offer multiple solutions that overlap with one another. Um, so part of it is just as we've grown as a company, you know, we've got 50 or so people now, it's a little bit easier to stay on top of those trends just because we have so many collectively, so many people that are working with different systems. But even then it's still, no matter how big we get or how, how much any one of us or all of us combined know, we're not going to know everything about every single system out there, especially with as fast as technology is changing. So to mitigate that risk or to fill that void, we leverage a uh, database that we use that tracks uh, several hundred software solutions against tens of thousands of business requirements. I think it's 30,000 plus business requirements. So that database gives us quantitative data of how well software can do different things and different types of software or, or different types of functions. And we use that quantitative data to augment what we know about these different systems, match it up against client business requirements. And that's how we ultimately landed a, at a short list for, for clients. Yeah. And, and just to clarify, that database is proprietary to third stage, correct? Yeah. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. Interesting. Well, I think that's, that's such an important just knowledge base to be able to understand because I can only imagine being an organization, especially a larger, very complex organization that wants to go through a software selection or at least go through a software discovery to see if that's the right choice for them. Where to start? Really, there, there's a lot of internal phase zero planning, data cleansing, optimization, understanding your future state, your overall strategic goals. But once you do all of those exercises internally, I'm sure it can be pretty daunting to say, okay, now how do, how do we choose the best fit for our organization under a lot of that pressure, especially for, you know, a mid-tier organization, that's a huge spend and investment, a lot of stress to get it right. It is. Yeah. And that's why you want to make sure you, you invest the time and the thoroughness to get the decision right, but not so much that you get stuck in analysis paralysis or you end up delaying, uh, you know, a, a time sensitive implementation. Absolutely. Well, I think it's a great segue kind of into our CIO 
a panel from um, Digital Stratosphere and Mia. And just a reminder, those replays are available um, on our website through our events. You can still register and get the, the replays delivered right to your inbox. But um, I have to say, this is one of the most fun and informative panels I've ever moderated. So I'm really excited to be able to share that with our audience. Yeah, I, I agree. It's, it's really good, um, partially because there's just so many um, diverse, different background and different experience bases within the CIO group. Um, so we'll take a quick break. When we come back, we'll play you this clip that, that Kyler facilitated in that session um, where she has a number of different uh, CIOs uh, in the panel. So we'll take a quick break and we'll come right back with that panel. In the meantime, you're listening to Transformation Ground Control. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstageconsulting.com. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 87. You can find new episodes every Wednesday on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and YouTube. You can also find it on all the audio podcast platforms like Google, Pandora, Spotify, Amazon Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, etc. So excited to play you this clip of a CIO panel talking about the modern CIO and what skills are needed to survive now and in the future. And uh, this is a, a session that Kyler facilitated as part of our uh EMEA-based digital stratosphere event. Um, just recently, a couple of weeks ago, we hosted this. So we want to play you this clip because it was a particularly good panel discussion. So I'll turn it over to you, Kyler, and we'll introduce our guests and um, get into the conversation. Welcome, everybody. Good to see my colleagues online as well. Looking forward to a very interactive chat. So uh, thank you. Thank you for being here today. Um, Kyler, it's been a while since I left my CIO days, probably about 15 years, but uh, so probably well before the start of this whole digital transformation era. But I have spent a lot of time with organizations such as Gartner, Ernst & Young, KPMG, and Third Stage, of course, as well, in working with CIOs and executives and helping them navigate this uh, rather nebulous term of digital transformation. So uh, no doubt we're going to unpack that a little bit further today. But uh, that's just a quick overview of my background. Thank you. Excellent. Well, let's go to you next, Peter, if you could. Yeah, great. Thanks, Carla. Um, so I've been a CIO for um, over 22 years. I've been in the CIO role. So I've had uh, extensive management experience um, in the role and uh, running large uh, teams. Um, I've been working mainly in downstream oil and gas. So um, that's uh, refining and uh, storage and distribution. Um, I have completed an MBA degree. I've also 
been at uh, Harvard Business School and Oxford Business School and Rotterdam Business School, where I did uh, a few business-based and IT-based courses. And my main areas of interest are on strategy integration. A lot has been spoken about uh, today around complexity and um, the complex overlays between business and IT. Uh, and and um, those are the sorts of things that, uh, that interest me in trying to find solutions for, uh, for those complexities. Um, the other area is uh, IT of the future. So really trying to understand where, how to structure your IT department and divisions going forwards. And then of course, governance. We've heard uh, there were some questions around um, governance in smaller organizations and the need for governance. Um, and uh, the governance, my specific governance focus is around the architectures area, data, and of course, security. Um, that's it from me, Kyla. Lovely. Thank you, Peter. We're so excited to learn from you. Um, Bridwan, how about yourself? Oh, sorry, it's you. Oh, I didn't expect you to call me so suddenly. I know. I, I wanted to go out of order. I almost did that to Gaston, but I'm like, he's not on our team, so that's not very that's nice. A, that's a typical CEO in the executive session. I'm just joking. Um, yeah, so um, I director at uh, Third Stage prior to joining. I spent about five years at Gartner where I actually worked with, coached, mentored, and uh, uh, yeah, um, helped CIOs and chief digital officers with strategy. So prior to that, my CIO experience has been in healthcare and in financial services. So it was interesting. In the first time I did it, the financial services, digital transformation wasn't there. I went from a senior business analyst straight into a CIO. A lot of guys have come through the trenches will know exactly what I'm talking about. So that was very, very interesting. Learned a lot, though. Uh, second time around, uh, when I was a CIO, what was interesting is while I was executing the CIO duties, I did my MBA around digitalization. Yeah. So that's the experience I bring to the table. And I look forward to uh, interacting with my colleagues today. Well, excellent. Well, speaking of um, your mentor uh, roles, we have our youngest member, which is uh, the young gun here. Um, so, uh, Sholavella, you want to introduce yourself um, as well as our one of our current CIOs within the area? Uh, yes, thank you. Thank you so much. Um, yes, I am Tsolofelo Mwecha. Um, in terms of my experience, so I, I come from a route of software development. I have a BSc and an MBA like uh, most of us these days. Uh, but um, what makes it interesting is that I started as a software developer and worked my way up uh, from leadership and management all the way to CIO. So today when you meet me, I'm one of those freshly minted CIOs and uh, uh, Red One was, a, was one of my mentors while I was battling in the trenches trying to convince business to do this thing called transformation. Well, excellent. Well, we have a lot to learn from you as I, I know we're going to dive into the role of a modern CIO here in just a bit. But um, last but certainly not least is Gassan. I feel like we're old personal friends at this point because you join all of our live stream. We learn so much from you. So if you want to, if you could just let us know a little bit about your yourself and your background. First of all, thank you, uh, Kyler, for having me on the CIO panel. Um, my name is Hassan Kabara. Uh, I was raised and born in the Middle East, uh, in Kuwait most of my life. I worked in Saudi Arabia, a bit in Dubai and Bahrain. I graduated as an electrical engineer back in the 80s at Northeastern University, and my career started uh, working as a hardware engineer fixing computers. Um, that was kind of boring. Uh, you were just changing chips and motherboards. So I started to get into um, the, the software and the analytical side, 
So I've worked uh, uh, with a software services company uh, back in the early 90s. And then I uh, evolved into um, as an IT manager kind of CIO position with car dealerships. I worked with four car dealerships and uh, 10 years in the construction industry. Uh, also, I've had a lot of chance to work as a consultant, work, work with the big four on a couple of projects in oil and gas and done over the half a dozen, actually over a dozen consultancies. And I'm an auditor as well. I go inside and I audit IT departments and do some freelance work. And uh, I wear multiple hats. Well, excellent. Well, we have a, a lot to learn from you today as well. So we, we've got a lot of folks um, on this panel. So if you'd like to dive into one of the questions that I answer, just go ahead and put your hand up and I will pull you up into the hot seat, as I like to call it, um, up here on front. But I, I want to start with you, Peter, um, first of all, and kind of talk about how um, the role of a CIO has changed within the last five to 10 years with your wealth of experience. And then building on that, how do you see it changing within the next decade or so? Okay, so I think that, um, you know, over the last 10 years, we need to look at the business landscape um, and uh, review how technology has impacted organizations, how during the pandemic um, customer behaviors and preferences have changed, which have also impacted on uh, the way organizations need to be structured and how they need to deliver their services and so on. So when we're looking at um, the issues around uh, organizational performance, we've also been exposed to a lot of the issues we've had on supply chain problems globally and uh, many supply chains being um, linked globally have had uh, issues. We've all experienced um, problems, whether that relates to manufacturing or to, uh, to, to food or, or any other services. So organizations basically have to start looking at, you know, how do you transition to ensure that you remain relevant in this current context? And of course, to do that, the CIO is really very well positioned given that there should be a lot of understanding, deep understanding of the technologies, of the potential capabilities of the technologies, and then also a good understanding of how that specific organization that they work in, how that organization needs to adapt to the changes and to respond to the changes that are expected by the consumers and the customers. So essentially, I think that, you know, if you look over the last 10 years, just track back on the technology, Track back on where CIOs were purely more focused on operational issues, probably infrastructural issues, application issues, and how that has transitioned into CIOs playing a leadership role in defining the new business operating models. So being part of uh, business strategy and working together with business to try to reshape the organization and to pivot the organization so that it starts going down the route where it can start delivering value-added services to the consumers and the customers. And of course, that comes back to the point of saying that the CIO's role itself has transitioned to being more of a value-driven role. So it's not purely operational. It's focusing more on how do I deliver value to the organization that's going to result and improve the bottom line of the organization. 
so I think that that's sort of uh, historically where we have been and, um, you know, uh, where things potentially have come from. And going forwards, we've been speaking about agility. We've been speaking about, um, you know, moving to do we use waterfall? Do we use agile? How do organizations need to transition? What is the rate of change? What is the pace of change? And that is something that we're seeing is, is immensely relevant at the moment, that strategy in the past was largely drawn from history. It was largely um, incremental, whereas strategy going forwards is going to be based on exponential change. And exponential change cannot have a static historic strategy. It needs to have something like scenario-based strategies so that as the trigger points happen, you can implement the strategy that's most appropriate. So I think going forwards, for CIOs, it's going to be an enormous challenge, but an ex extremely exciting period and great to be in the role at this specific point in the history of technology and of organization transitions. Absolutely. Very well said. And I love the energy around that excitement. Um, so Clifford, uh, talk to us a little bit about this evolution that you've seen not only in being a CIO, but advising CIOs. Yeah, I mean, and, and, and I'll respond by um, latching onto a term that, that Peter used, Kyla, um, the operating model and being able to influence an organization's operating model. It's not a, it's not a role that we would have expected from a CIO even five or eight years ago. So, so the CIO as a disruptor, I think, is an important role. Um, and what, what I mean by the operating, but also essentially how organizations create, deliver and capture value and the types of capabilities required to do so. And of course, this in a market that is going through such a pace of change. So the CIO's ability to, to bring that outside in view and proactively influence business strategy, not react to it, which is, you know, in my area as a CIO, and I've seen this change happen, in my area as a CIO, the traditional way of strategic planning was the business go away, do a strat plan, and come back, hand it to the IT guys, and uh, six months later, you may get a respond, response from the IT guys as to how they're going to respond to, to the business strategy. And typically, that response is going to be crafted in techno language and generally start with listing the top five IT pet projects. Uh, and you know, and, and that's changed. The CIO as a disruptor has to be able to sense and, and be able to, to, to guide the organization in terms of responding to both digital opportunities and threats um, and be proactive in being able to do that. And of course, the last point I'll make on that is that requires a seat at the executive table and many CIOs struggle with that, either because they have a legacy of poor delivery or because they simply do not have the leadership skills and business acumen to be able to contribute at the, at the executive table. So a, a whole lot of challenges for CIOs um, at this point in time, I think. Absolutely, and, and Gazan, can you talk to us a little bit about that overall evolution and how do you earn a seat at that table? And I'm just gonna leave this right here. Have you read all those books or no? <laughs> yeah, um, the, the, yeah, I guess, <laughs> yeah, thank you very <laughs> much. Um, I just wanna build on what Cliff was saying. Um, uh, as you know, in the past, the CIO has been nothing but a back office and uh, IT has been treated as a cost center. And we want that to change. We want a seat on the table. So the first change that needs to happen really is the job description, I believe, of the CIO needs to be changed. So, so, so we can earn that seat on the table. And I'm sure there are a lot of companies that are 
CIOs that are, are trying to get to the second stage, not being um, order takers as such. So uh, yes, uh, to be a business leader, you need to be able to, 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 to innovate and change, make changes, and also not only as a change agent, but also um, uh, be able to translate the technology, the tech talk that we have with our team and convert that in, in, in simple English to the executives. And we need to cultivate a, um, a network of, 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 of people so they can be on your side. And really, it's, it's, it's a people's game at the end of the day. We need to get out of our seats from sitting, talking to our technical people and, and start spending a lot of time with the executives. At the end of the day, as a CIO, we're in the way, we're a target in the middle. We've got our boss to worry about, we've got our subordinates, we've got our peers. So we have to go you know, around this target and, and, and do the tour so we can slowly, slowly build the trust. I believe we need to start building the trust. Yeah, that's well said. And and Tishalafa, I want to go to you as you know, you are obviously in a sitting CIO role. How do you feel about that evolution into more of a strategic executive decision maker as opposed to just siloed in technology? Yes, so it, it is very important. Um, I think the question was, how do we earn the seat? So, so we earn the seat at the table uh, by being strategic. You know, uh, so one of the questions talking about being reactive or proactive. So that, that's where we start, we be proactive. And that um, starts off with us as CIOs um, understanding the business. We, we, we should understand the business probably more than anybody else, right? When you use departments, they're all about products. They understand product, marketing understands marketing. But as a CIO, uh, I think you, you bring the most value by understanding the business from end to end. And you see the whole universe of how technology can create opportunities. You know, they, they, they have started to create those conversations around opportunities is where I got respect um, uh, to be invited to those uh, meetings at Exco to even have a seat in those important mm -hmm. conversations. But we need to move away from being seen as the guy, as the guy who who's going to fix your Wi-Fi to a guy who's going to speak possibilities. You know, how do we uh, see technology creating those opportunities for our business to add to the bottom line? Absolutely. Spoken well from a, a modern CIO. And and Ridwan, I know um, you advise CIOs. You're our, our main advisor when it comes to um, building transformation projects, but also how do you be a successful CIO? You even have a series on it that you've done for third stage with us um, as well. And so how do you navigate these new political landscapes around being a CIO? I know you've mentioned something that's really always resonated with me is it's a very lonely role. It is a very lonely role. And uh, yeah, we forget in, uh, in the, at the start of uh, back in the, I think it was around about the 90s, CIO actually stood for careers over. So, <laughs> I think it's it's coming back again, again if um, CIOs don't step up to the plate. So I'll build on what you're saying, uh, Kyla, but also just going to that earning your seat at the table. Um, so I'll give you a practical example. When I was in healthcare, um, so I, I, I earned the seat on the table by what I call the ticket to the game. So everything is running, right? So you must make sure your back office and stuff is running. If that is not running, don't even bother trying to talk about strategic stuff. If the guy says it takes two weeks just to get a laptop out of you, I'm not interested in giving you 100 million for your project. 
So I think it's important that we mustn't overlook that. We mustn't give the wrong impression. That's still part of your of your job. So make sure that all of those things are running. Then start have the strategic conversations with the business. And then what you what will happen organically is like we shouldn't be asking for permission. Because what happened in my case is that they they needed somebody to look after corporate services. And because my department was running, I was starting to build out digitalization. Now, if you think about digitalization, it encompasses your entire business. It's not just an IT thing. So I did a lot of, um, like, uh, to, to answer your question about how do you navigate this, you have what Gartner calls us a digital evangelist. So you talk about it all the time, but you talk about it in business sense and you win them over. What ended up happening is that I ran IT as well as corporate services. We're here playing you a clip of a panel discussion that we recently hosted with a group of CIOs talking about the modern CIO and what skills are needed going forward. We're going to continue the conversation when we come back from a quick break. You're listening to Transformation Ground Control. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstage-consulting.com. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 87. We're in the midst of a panel discussion that we're replaying for you that is from our digital stratosphere event recently. And this is a CIO panel discussion talking about the modern CIO. And I'll bring it back to, there's a question that's being asked here. Are CIOs the COOs of the future? Most definitely, it's already happening. It makes sense because what you're finding now is like, so the C, C, even CIOs are getting what they call head of IT. So they're getting them to run the back office and they're becoming more like the COO of IT. But going forward, I definitely see CIOs becoming the CEOs. So how do you navigate this thing by being politically savvy, understanding the business and the technology, and then triangulating all, all three to be able to show that it fits in with the business vision. And then going forward, the new term that's coming out now, it's called the future fit CIO. So instead of being an order taker, a modern CIO, you start to transcend and say, yes, business models that you haven't even thought about because AI is enabling that. So the business roundabout way, I tried to cover many topics there. I hope I answered your question. Yeah, well, absolutely. You always do in such an eloquent way that's so easy to digest. So that's why we, we force you to be on all the live streams, Ridwan. You're our, our star. But <laughs> Peter, how do we earn a seat at the table as a modern CIO. Crack the code on, on that for us. Okay, so I think the first thing is um, to separate structure from the role that you're performing and the deliverables. 
So a seat at the table does not mean that you need to report to the CEO. Okay, and I think that you need to get that mindset shift. A lot of CIOs in the few years back, um, you know, it was a drive to try and get a seat at the table by reporting to the CEO. That's not necessarily the case. There was an earlier question around being proactive or reactive. If you are a proactive CIO and you are contributing to the strategic discussion and you are participating in driving the agenda of the organization because of your credibility by being able to marry technology with your specific organization and industry that you're working in, you will be recognized as somebody that has a seat at the table. So I think that it's, it's very important to get that sort of set in your mind, that it's not a positional play, it's a behavioral play. So I think that, um, you know, what needs to be done to make sure that you're going to get a seat at the table, as I mentioned, is, um, you know, it's the way you understand the technology environment, the business environment, the context of your organization, the context of the broader customer environment, what your customers are expecting from your organization, and therefore what you need to do as a CIO to integrate all of that to get you part of the strategic discussion, which of course is then going to result in uh, you know business improvement to the organization, whether that is internal business improvement or external business improvement. So internal improvement could be operational efficiency improvements through technologies. External improvements could be value-driven generating, um, income-driven generation uh, type uh, improvements. Well said, Peter. Absolutely. Um, you know, I, I love that you touched on that opportunity to have a seat at the table. Doesn't mean you need to report to the CIO. It needs. It means you need to know the business. And speaking of that, um, Clifford, it, it sounds like based on what we're saying, the evolution is really moving into more of that business technologist. So maybe you can kind of explain to us some of the skills that are needed for a CIO in 2022 versus a CIO in 1992. Sure, sure, Carla. You know, and, and, and one or two quite simple things come to mind. Language. You know, language is important. And we tend to, you know, IT speak has a set of terminologies and acronyms of its own. And, and I know from being on involved in many projects, often the business users don't have a clue of what we're talking about. Um, and so just being able to use simplistic and frame things in terms of business outputs rather than IT techno speak. Uh, it builds bridges, but it's a great divide. And sometimes I think it's convenient for us as IT professionals to have our own language. It's, it's, it's kind of provides a little bit of an exclusive club. And it, it's so important that we just use simple language and we break things down. I mean, the number of times um, I've been waiting outside a CIO's office and, for a meeting and uh, go around and look at the notice board and there's a list of all the IT projects. They're all framed in IT terms the SAP project, the infrastructure upgrade project, the land project, it's all framed in IT terms. You know, and what has to, as an example, turn that around. So what are the what are the business capabilities and competencies that we're hoping to improve or advance? Um, and frame it in terms of why can we, why do we need to call it the SAP, the SAP project or the Microsoft project? Can we not call it the business improvement project? 
um, or the business process re-engineering project, or, or whatever the case may be, the customer centricity project, etc. So I think something simple like language is a great divide, and we uh, we need to be able to speak in business terms and frame our contribution in terms of the, how it enables businesses and improves businesses' performance. So I, I think that's a simple but extremely important um, thing that that we can do to improve the relationships and create joint accountability with business. Absolutely. And and I'm going to ask you to build on that, Ghassan, um, in, in how that works specifically culturally um, within our EMEA, specifically Middle East region, how that looks for a CIO that might be um, trying to create that influence around a digital transformation or any sort of project or strategic decision. Um, thank you, Tyler. Um, before um, the CIO in the Middle East uh, tries to build, I just want to say something because um, I've worked with SMBs uh, and not SMEs. Uh, the difference between an SME and an SMB is SME is an enterprise and an SMB is a business. And sometimes you don't have the, the structure that an enterprise uh, offers, uh, you know, from top to down to IT. Uh, the CIOs for those SMBs, the challenges they have, now, as you know, uh, no matter what size of an organization you have, and I want to focus a bit on the cyber threats, you're going to get attacked, whether you like it or not, okay? And so the SMBs uh, tend to have less resources to be able to, to mitigate the, the risks of attack. The same goes with emerging technologies, okay? So the, we, they don't have those funds that they would like to have to start experimenting with, with you know, the AIs or even the BOTs. So what I've noticed is they, uh, that they're always trying to fight fire. So, and uh, that's why for them to innovate, to innovate it's, uh, it's very challenging, okay? And that's where you have to go back to, to the CEO and ask for, for more budget and you have to have a good proven case to be able to, to go one step beyond because you're basically going, you want, you want funds to be able to, to move on. The same goes with skilled, with the skilled workers that you have in IT. And what happens is we tend to outsource a lot in IT. And by outsourcing, what you do is you're not letting the person that works internally to, to get his hands on onto a project. So eventually they feel left out. And I've seen this in a few companies that I've audited or I work with where they've, and they've left you. So one of the reasons that people are leaving, and this is a statistic, is they don't see any any room for growth in careers. So it's a very tricky situation uh, I'm talking about with, with, with respect to the Middle East for the CIO. But still, nevertheless, we do go knock on the doors on the CEO and, and we tell them how we can try to innovate and what we can do. And, and you know, but there's a lot of forces against you where you start to get politically savvy and use a bit of emotional intelligence and, you know, do the whole PR thing all over again. Um, this is with, with this part of the world. Absolutely. Um, and I, I want to kind of build on what you said, Gassan, um, with Tishola Fellow and, and talk about um, those emerging technologies and the role of a CIO. I can only imagine trying to keep up with predictive analytics, um, artificial intelligence, machine learning, those all types of different new systems when trying to strategize what's best for the organization. How do you make sure that your business has that competitive advantage? Or how would you recommend CIOs deal with all this new emerging technology? 
Yes, thank you. So um, before, I, before I even answer that, I think let me uh, start off with where Clifford left off regarding sure. um, business talk. So one of the things I learned very quickly, uh, my first board meeting about five years ago, I went in and everybody before me was hammered, right? They were blasted throughout their presentations. And I stood up, presented, and nobody asked a single question. And I thought, you know, well done. Um, but during lunchtime, speaking to the guys, I only realized to my um, surprise that nobody understood what I said. You know, they, they were not asking questions because they didn't understand. That was just too technical, which, which uh, uh, loses the point, especially at that level when you're trying to drive a message of the importance of your projects. So learning a business uh, talk, business skills talk, is a, a good point where uh, we should start, especially once you, you get to the table. Um, to go to your questions around technology, so it, it, it's very important uh, for CIOs to stay abreast of what's happening in the technology space. You know, uh, subscriptions to research companies like Gartner, McKinsey, you name it, uh, those help a lot uh, for you to keep abreast. But I think what I found the most important thing is how do you relate it back to your business? You know, there are some technologies that are not going to help you a single bit just because of the type of business you're in, right? So not all technologies is going to work for you. You know, uh, uh, I was in my previous job, big data was irrelevant, right? Everybody was going around with big data. You need to get on this. You need to buy a new data warehouse. But at that specific industry and, and specific business, it was not relevant. So you also have to, to play those uh, uh, things off in terms of what's important for your company. And that can only happen if you understand the business you're in. You need to understand it, like I said, uh, more than most of your business units. Absolutely. So well said and, and definitely important when it comes to those industry terms that can be super fancy, but not have a lot of relevance to what you're trying to achieve as an organization. So we're here playing you a clip of a panel discussion that we recently hosted with a group of CIOs talking about the modern CIO and what skills are needed going forward. We're going to continue the conversation when we come back from a quick break. You're listening to Transformation Ground Control. If you are involved in any sort of digital transformation or business change initiative, you will want to download the 2021 Digital Transformation Report. With its comprehensive overview of business and technology trends and best practices, this report is a must-have guide for any transformation project or executive team. Download this free report by visiting Third Stage Consulting at thirdstage-consulting.com. You can also visit our website to learn more about us or download independent reports, videos, and other best practices. Again, visit thirdstage-consulting.com today to learn how to take your transformation to the third stage of success. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 87. We're in the midst of a panel discussion that we're replaying for you that is from our digital stratosphere event recently. And uh, this is a CIO panel discussion talking about the modern CIO. Ridwan, I'm gonna, I'm gonna bring you up and ask you to address this question from Sam Graham on LinkedIn. Is it even more dangerous when management thinks that they understand the 
the jargon? And how do you explain that to them as the technical executive um, or, or understand what that means for the organization? Yes, and my answer, and I'm sure everybody on the panel is going to agree with what I'm going to say is most definitely yes. So I used to have this story, I used to call it the brother-in-law syndrome. So I would say like your CEO would go, it didn't happen to me, but it, but I heard about it a lot. The CEO, for example, would go with his brother-in-law and play golf and he would say, did you hear about this new thing called machine learning? It's fantastic and it's great and it can do all the things for your business. Then this guy, or he went to some conference or something, he'll come back and he'll force you to like, why, why are we not doing that? Right? So the same thing. So let's talk about jargon. So the most overly used term is digital transformation. I always say like people are trying to sell me a cell phone. will use the word digital transformation. <laughs> try and slip a cell phone Sometimes that is a digital transformation for some people. <laughs> I suppose it, depending on your age, right? It could be digital transformation. But I think it's important to get this right, right? So I'll give you an example. I was talking to some guys today in Sierra Leone. So it's important to, for example, to say what is the difference between digital transformation? What's the difference between optimization? You have to get things like that right. If somebody is saying something at the, at the, the table, and I've been in situations where you sit on, 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 and I'm sure my colleagues will have been there, you sit on a steering committee, they brought some outside professor, and he's starting to talk about some stuff that doesn't make sense in the real world. He's never worked in, in, in the private sector. It's important that you nip these things in the bud very early. So to come back to that thing about digital optimization versus transformation, if your board thinks you're doing transformation and the company's doing optimization, you're in a bad space. So it's very important to control that language. So it's not just about the language you use. It's about learning language. It's, it's, it's watching the language that they use. And but doing it politely, obviously, you're not going to say, hey, what the hell are you talking about? But you, would, you, would, you have to manage that, that because if you don't, what you typically see, you seem to be a doctor now and they run off and bring a CDO or shadow IT starts to grow. So it's very, very important, not just to control your language or, or manage your business now, but to, 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 to manage what, what they are, what, what the business is, is, is talking about. It's very, very important. Absolutely. And, and I'm going to go to Clifford, who is um, our word specialist, I'll call him. But when we, we talk about the concept of digital transformation, specifically in that conversation of a CIO, what does that mean when you go in and, and have that conversation with, with your business peers? Yeah, that's a great question. It's very simple, but I think uh, extremely important, relevant question, because and, and my response is, it's all about digital and not about transformation. And, and what I mean by that is, you know, you were asking about which technologies one deploys as a CIO, how you make those investment decisions, um, how you deploy them, what you hope to achieve, what the business impact is of those technologies. We, we, we never define those things. All the focus is on digital and the whole industry is structured to sell us more tech. Um, so I think as CIOs in the modern era, one has to focus more on the transformation which part of the business model are we actually trying to influence and enable and how we will how will we define this the success thereof and who are the business stakeholders that need to make this work so i i don't want to say too much more on it except that i would absolutely encourage cios to unpack the word transformation what exactly are we trying to transform here and to ridman's point are we merely optimizing i.e are we merely driving more efficient business processes because you could do that with legacy erp that doesn't have to be a, a digital mm -hmm. transformation program. 
what are we actually trying to transform and enhance or which, what new capabilities are we looking to launch within the business so understand the word transformation it's more important than i'm trying to unpack the word digital i think thanks Carl. absolutely a hundred percent um so so i'm going to bring peter up because i want to kind of pivot on these same long these same lines of conversation when it comes to digital transformation typically you're going through a digital transformation to provide value to your overall business however it has historically seen uh, been like a cost center to the organization as opposed to driving value can you talk about the transition there and and more importantly how does the cio prove that they drive value to the business yeah um so i think that we all understand how uh, cost centers and profit centers work uh so basically you know as a cost center you are absorbing costs um and uh you are a cost to the other operations and you are you know deducting your costs from the profits of the organization basically so essentially when you're looking at it as a cost center you're operating in that almost back office mode where you running as a cost center and you are then having your various operational divisions deducting your costs from their potential profitability so in a case like that where you've got uh, whether it's transfer of costs or you know whether you um, just um, running within your own uh, cost center uh, the organization is going to feel and see you as eroding their potential margin mm -hmm. so what needs to be done to make that transition you need to understand how you can deliver value and the value delivery is going to be based on a clear understanding of what that specific division those internal customers that you are serving what they need to deliver what is valuable to them how they generate their income and at the same time having a good understanding of your organization's customers what are the products and the services that your organization is developing and manufacturing and building and what does the customer expect and why are the customers buying your products so essentially when once you understand that side of the operation you can start translating, as Clifford was saying earlier on, start translating what you are doing in business-based terms or in terms that your operating divisions can understand. Remember, your operating divisions are delivering the specific products and services to the customers and the customers are buying those services. And if they don't buy the services, well, you're out of business anyway. So essentially, it's making sure that you understand the terminology being used, but you also understand the metrics that are, are being used in terms of delivery. So if you have a clear understanding of what those metrics are, and I think that was also discussed during, um, you know, uh, Clifford's uh, quality assurance uh, topic earlier on. Um, when you understand exactly what those metrics are, and those metrics are visible to the divisions and the performance of the division, you can then match your IT delivery to the business delivery. So your metrics don't become, you know, I think as, as Chilafella was saying, 
don't become, you know, how many cell phones have you introduced into the organization, but rather how many new customers have got onto your platform, onto your digital platform to do um, online ordering, mm -hmm. you know, because that is something that the organization is looking at. How are you translating the, the, the profitability by customer based on the usage on your online platform rather than how many lines of code have I developed this month? So essentially, I think that it's a mindset shift and the mindset shift has to be put yourself in the shoes of your internal customers, your divisions, and put yourself in the shoes of your end consumer or customer and understand what needs to be driven, what the metrics are to get there, and uh, therefore how you're going to contribute to the profitability and the sustainability of your organization. Wow, very powerful. That was very, very well said. Um, Gusan, can you build on that as a, a, top, a business advisor when it comes to helping companies or organizations understand how to build value around IT and profitability ROI as opposed to it just being a cost center? How do you create that shift and that, that um, change of mindset? Um, Tyler, actually, um, to divert a bit from your question, um, there's a funny story. It's a true story. About uh, 10 years ago, about a decade ago, I went for an interview for a CIO position. And I remember it was in the Emirates Tower in the hotel. And uh, when I went inside, I met the CEO. And as you know, you know, I sat there, I took off my jacket and I opened the laptop. And I told him uh, I'd like to start a presentation. And he said, no, no, let's just talk. And uh, so I said, why do you want me on board? What's, what's your issue? He said, we have a problem. We're having problem with numbers. Finance are giving us numbers, but the sales have different numbers. We want someone to come in as an intern CIO and solve the problem. So the first thing I told him was, um, so who does this position report to? And he said, it reports to the CFO. So without thinking, I just stood up and put on my jacket and he said, what are you doing? I said, I wish you had told me this before you got me on uh, on a first class ticket because I, I I don't particularly want to report to CFO. He goes, why? Convince me. So I sat down and indeed I gave him three examples. I told him about innovation. I told him that, you know, uh, being under a CIO, I'll be treated as a cost center and then things will be contained and then maybe the ERP would be biased towards um, uh, um, finance. So, you know, I started to say a bit of a smooth talk to the guy and he said, great, you've you convinced you the job. When do we, when do we um, uh, press the button? And indeed, when I did go, go to the company about two months, three months later, and the problem they have was, was, and I don't want to talk about it in this discussion, was exactly as I anticipated. They had a problem reconciling uh, the transactions that would come from the sales and the inventory that were hitting finance for some setup issues, and that was solved. So he did find the value added there. I just wanted to mention this because, uh, you know, I do raise my hat to all CFOs, and I believe without them, we won't get the money we need. Um, but that was one of those uh, spontaneous <laughs> reactions I made. <laughs> oh, absolutely. 
Yeah, we experience that a lot in, in digital transformation, specifically in our client work. Who owns the transformation? Is it the COO, the CIO, or the CFO? And a lot of times, if it's the CFO, that can be a, a difficult conversation to understand the value in that. So I think that that's a great kind of war story. And I'm actually going to bring up Ridwan to kind of talk about the ownership of a digital transformation project and what that looks like as far as who should own it or what do, what who what executive stakeholders should be involved. So I believe it's a digital transformation is a is a team sport and the ownership starts at the top. It starts with the board, it starts with the exco and then it rolls down. So um, I was watching a talk the other day and the lady made an interesting comment. She said, as soon as you bring a CDO, all they're doing is having somebody to point the finger at when things go wrong. That's what, okay, that makes sense. Yeah, so it's a team sport. It doesn't just include IT, it includes the entire organization. So for example, one of the things that I did when I started my digital transformation journey, when I was in healthcare, I was doing my MBA. One of the things I picked up from the research is use this thing called fusion teams. It's just a fancy term was saying, don't just make it about IT, use people from outside of IT as well. So I think that's it, it's important that people understand, even if you have a CDO, it's not her, his or her sole responsibility. It's a team sport, starting at all the way, all the way down. Yeah, well said, and and well said, and then hard to kind of navigate, right? Um, the additional uh, pieces of how do you share this responsibility as an organization or as an executive team, and so I'm going to bring up Clifford um, as well, who you know obviously you oversee this on a day to day basis and understand that dynamic. So can you explain to us when it comes to digital transformation what project ownership should look like? Yes, so I really see that question, Carla, as not dissimilar from who owns the business strategy. Because you cannot separate the two. And too often these days, what sees in a, still these days, what sees in an organization a business strategy, sometimes, not always, but often some form of a business strategy, what sees a separate IT strategy and increasingly a separate digital transformation strategy, and never show the three meet. And, and, you know, in this day and age, one cannot have that. You have to have it developed, both in terms of its development and the final product. It has to constitute one interdependent strategy in terms of how the organization is going to move forward. And the evidence and justification for that is very clear. Um, if you look at, at any business strategy in this day and age, and there isn't a significant component or portfolio of technology projects enabling and driving that, something's amiss because one can do nothing at scale these days without being dependent on technology. So the interdependency and alignment between technology, whether you would call that digital transformation or ID and the business strategy is, you know, those, those, dividing, those divides have come down. It needs to be one business strategy uh, that clearly articulates uh, the organization will leverage technology resources and assets to achieve its business goals. There's no such thing as separate digital IT business strategies in my view. Yeah. That's interesting. That's very interesting. And and to show the fellow, I, I kind of want to get your perspective on this as someone who kind of lives within these trenches on a day-to-day -day basis. How do you see your role as a, a CIO? Are you just a, a leader simply of the digital Piece, or are you a, a main executive on the business strategy side? Yes, I think um, 
the most important thing is for us to see ourselves as a business unit, um, a business unit that can contribute to the revenue of the company. So when you see yourselves like that, then you, you're not just a, a technology evangelist, but you are somebody who is championing uh, business objectives and business outcomes. You know, I think um, a lot of the issues have come from a business partner, maybe a sales department saying, uh, hi, Solo, can you digitalize me? And then they go and sit down, right? They leave you there, come three months later and say, have you digitalized me? So, so uh, we found the hard way that it doesn't work like that. We need to um, be working together with the business in these types of digitalization projects where uh, he's the champion of the project, but IT is the lead in execution, for example. Where uh, um, I think uh, one of my sales chiefs wanted a new CRM. It worked very well when he is the champion of the CRM and then IT leads him in the implementation, right? Mm -hmm. Rather than saying, IT, uh, you go and do this thing and then come back uh, a couple of months later and say, I, I don't know what you've done. So what I found works best is where the CIO builds very strong relations with the business, where um, networking is an important skill to have, you know, building relationships, uh, being able to have somebody's uh, uh, back and call when there are issues, when there are opportunities uh, to, for discussions and so on. So I found it works better if, if us, the CIOs, are more business savvy and, and I think we lost you just there for a, a quick second. So I'm just going to um, shift gears here and I'm going to Oh, sorry. Are you back? It's always the, the view of live streaming, right? Um, is um, it's, it sometimes can be glitchy. But with that, I want to I want to go to you, Peter, to talk about that that influence. And um, I think Tijola Fellow's point is so important about the fact of networking within the organization and creating almost a, a modern IT structure within the CFO's role. How do you, uh, how do you as a business leader ensure that you are um, creating that integration without, um, without, uh, with sorry, um, being able to showcase that impact? Yes, I, I you know, I think that. Um we've mentioned that the CIO needs to have a relatively broad understanding and contextual understanding of technology, business, the industry they're in, and maybe more of the global market and, and so on. So when you are engaging with your executive team, there needs to be almost a passion from your side that ties back into each of their specific areas of delivery. And that's a big ask for anybody, because basically we're saying, you know, I've got somebody that's heading retail, I've got somebody that's heading supply chain, I've got somebody that's heading finance, et cetera, et cetera. And here I've got the CIO, and this person needs to understand retail, manufacturing, finance, and IT, and marry it all together and start saying, well, how do I get this organization to get onto this track mm -hmm. where I am proactive in driving delivery and change? And, uh, you know, um, there was a great discussion on change management earlier on and, uh, you know, how you involve change management 
in your projects and in your business delivery. And I think that that's absolutely critical. But what I'm getting back to is that the unique nature of that person that is in the CIO role. And to me, a large thing here is that, you know, I might be sort of smacked by saying this, but um, I see, I think a CIO needs to be, to some extent, a selfless person. They cannot be an ego-driven person. And I'm being very stereotypical, but when I'm looking at a CEO role, they generally need to be quite ego-driven because they need to set the vision and the strategy and get everybody to align and work with them. When you're looking at the CIO, because they need to work with multiple personalities across an organization, they cannot have an overriding ego themselves because they're going to alienate people. And as soon as you alienate one within the executive team, one bad apple that's sitting in, in, in the basket is eventually going to infect the rest. And I think that that is a, um, almost a mindset and a behavioral approach that CIOs need to adopt to say, well, you know, how am I going to ensure I can engage successfully with all of these different business leaders and at the same time, get them to understand what I would like to see in terms of using technology and changing this organization and driving this organization down its digital journey without being seen as, you know, well, hold on, it's all about me. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not all about me. So, um, I think that, uh, to me, try and get that right and, and you'll have a lot more success in your engagements with, with uh, the executive peer group and also in being part of that development of the business strategy. And Clifford's point was so important. You have to get your organization to understand that there is one single business strategy. There's no business strategy, technology strategy, and digital strategy. And data strategy is the new one that's coming along now as well. It has to be integrated into one overall business strategy. That's very, very well said, um, most certainly. And, and I want to go to Ghassan specifically and kind of build off of what Peter said in a specific digital transformation lens or any sort of technology implementation or even an optimization as all of those different pieces that fall into there. How that within that project governance, do you ensure that that interoperability throughout the organization and, and collaboration is taking place? Wow. Wow. Uh, I wanted to, to, to add to Peter's, uh, no, yes, yes, you got to have a humble C CIO, C CIO uh, with, with all the pressures <laughs> and, with, and avoid the egos because not only is the CIO worried about, you know, the digital transformation and now with the introduction of all the cyber threats, which is ever increasing um, exponentially as well. So I, I wish us all the best. On the governance side, uh, Kyler, is um, what, what I've noticed is uh, there has to be uh, some formal governance in place that's kind of cross-functional because uh, a, lo a lot of uh, organizations, and I'm talking maybe in the Middle East, uh, there, tend there tends to be a lot of uh, sh at, um, IT shadowing that's going on where um, a lot of end users tend to bypass IT because maybe of the weak governance model that they have. Uh, and 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 then you know this creates a big issue in terms of security and 
destroys the whole strategy that Pete's been talking about. So I think uh, to, to achieve the, a good governance model, that has to be uh, done with, with the executives within all departments, and it has to be a cross-functional uh, uh, decision-making for the investment opportunities. I see weaknesses in that, and then that has to be implemented and uh, in order to go beyond. But with, without a strong governance model, I think we're doomed to, to, to having shadowing ITs and, and misalignments. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah, project governance is something that, you know, we we really um, hone in on to make sure our clients are effectively optimized for success. So within our last couple minutes here, I want to kind of do a, a round robin when it comes to if you were talking to a CIO right now or even a CIO that's coming up within the ranks, what would be one piece of advice that you would give them? And I'm actually going to start with with you, Tashola Fellow, if you don't mind, um, since you're in that role, um, to kind of take us through what your piece of advice would be. Yeah. <clears throat> if I were to, uh, give one piece of advice, it would be to start dressing up, putting on a suit. <laughs> I was just about to say when you when you become a consultant, you don't have to wear a tie. It's gonna be great. <laughs> yeah, so it's, a, it's a little trick that I use. <laughs> it's a little trick that I use to remind me that uh, I'm part of the business. Mm -hmm. I think that's that's one big piece of advice to say you are part of the business. You're not a cost center. You need to start thinking as a, as a, somebody who contributes to the business. And as Peter and and, and uh, Clifford had said, you know, part of the business strategy. You, you must see yourselves as part of that. And that's to me, is one piece of advice I would give. Start wearing your, your business tie. I love it. Wearing, I'm going to put my tie on after this. All right, Gassan, <laughs> I'm going to you. Yeah, uh, one piece of advice. Um, I would ask that CIO uh, to revisit his, uh, his SWOT analysis of himself mm -hmm. uh, and, and, uh, and be really honest and humble about his weaknesses and of course identify the strength because what you want to do is you want to look at those weaknesses that you have whether you're a techno savvy guy and you're not a people's person and you want to get inside and, and you want to start building on that so you can start gaining trust uh, and, and building cultivating the network within the organization again i go back to the issue be, do a pr be a people's person and start meeting with people let them trust you people will buy from you if they like you they know you and they trust you and you need to do that that's my know you and trust yeah absolutely be a people's person be fun bring the fun right peter yeah. what would you yeah. give your advice for a cio okay so i think that i'm i'm going to open this up by saying that we are living in extraordinary times and we are extremely lucky to be living at this specific point in time and that we are able to contribute to organizational change and business change because of the roles that we're in. Customer behaviors and preferences are changing. Change is becoming exponential. It's becoming quick. We need to be able to pivot quickly. We need to use things like scenario planning rather than, you know, long-term, uh, the, the, the previous way of doing, uh, doing strategies. Um, we need to delay a complexity. We live in com complex times, and as things become more exponential, things will become more complicated.
but you need to delay the complexity. And I think in doing those things, we can become extraordinary people. Wow, Peter, yeah. I'm just going to call you every morning because you just eat, sleep and breathe inspiration. <laughs> you know, I, I just the energy. I, I absolutely love it. So Ridwan, um, what's what's your advice for the modern CIO? So it's interesting if you build on that series that we did, Kyla, and if you listen to the CIOs and current CIOs today, it's that message that I keep pushing, right? It's not just about the technology. You need to understand the technology, but it's about the soft skills. It's the people skills. My son made a very interesting point there about selling. I always said what made me good as a CIO was the ability to go into a boardroom and get what I want. That was a very, very key um, traits to have. So it's, it's, I would say to an up-and-coming CRO, somebody who wants to get into the space, yes, do the technology stuff, but don't deep dive too much unless you want to be a specialist. If you want to move into the CRO space, start looking more at business um, stuff, do, do like things like MBAs and also the soft skills. And let's not underestimate things like doing public speaking courses. We can all uh, um, benefit from doing refreshes in that. And the ability to read a room. And, and what's interesting now is they're saying leaders should have empathy especially after COVID. We never spoke about these soft skills and things. So I would say, yeah, and um, keep that at the front of your mind that as you studying and learning about technology, also learn about how to manage and work with and influence other people. Well said, definitely very powerful. And and um, lastly, we'll end um, with, with Clifford. Um, who talks a, you know, a lot about the role of the CIO as our leader on the EMEA side. Um, so Clifford, what is your advice to a modern CIO? My advice is very simple, Kyla. I think CIOs, especially those that have been in their positions for a long time, need to continuously ask themselves the question, if your company was hiring a CIO today, would they still hire you? I think it's an important question. Oh man, you. you guys, that last, I have chills. I have chills going up my spine. So thank you so much for this unbelievable insight. All right. Thank you, Kyler and CIOs and panel panelists, I should say. Thank you for being here and uh, letting us play you this clip uh, for the audience for this podcast. Uh, great conversation, really interesting stuff. In fact, uh, we've got a lot to unpack when we come back from a quick break. You're listening to Transformation Ground Control. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos and other best practices at thirdstageconsulting.com. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 87. I'm Eric, I'm here with Kyler, and we just had this uh, CIO panel discussion 
what were some of your thoughts now that even though you were there, you're the one that facilitated it. So you kind of asked a lot of the questions that, that you had, but what were some of your takeaways after that conversation? I mean, well, first of all, what an amazing honor to be able to learn from these these executives in the marketplace. Um, and many of them have decades long experience. And then we also have obviously Tosholo Fellow that is a current CIO um, and kind of can teach us about what the evolution is actually living it um, at this point. And I think a lot of people don't realize uh, the amount of former CIOs that we have here at Third Stage um, that actually come into the consulting world because they've transitioned out of those bigger, more corporate jobs, but do a lot of CIO coaching. For example, Ridwan was Tosholo Fellow's CIO coach and helped him get into that role um, from our Third Stage Africa team. So I th think that's kind of an interesting kind of look behind the curtain. But I'm really curious. I was even, you know, um, messaging Eric while I was moderating, like, you got to get in here if you're if you're not already. But I'm, I'm really interested to hear your feedback, Eric, on on the evolution of the modern CIO, is the, the CIO position, you know, completely irrelevant now and it needs to move to a, a chief digital officer or those those more business executive encompass positions as opposed to just more of an information technology silo? What do you think? Well, I guess I don't have a strong opinion on what you call it. I mean, you could call it chief digital officer or, or CIO. They, they tend to kind of blur together in many organizations or across organizations. Um, but I do think what you said is, is spot on about the business focus. And, you know, on one hand, just keeping up with technology alone is is overwhelming for a lot of people, or at least for me, it is. So it, I imagine it is for a lot of CIOs too. Um, so keeping up with technology alone, that in and of itself is, is difficult. It can be overwhelming. But on top of that, you really have to understand how your business works today, how it's changing, what the strategy is. So I think it's a really cool role and it's becoming an even cooler role because it's really transitioning from a uh, what has historically been a sort of more of a maintenance and support function of let's just keep the lights on. Let's make sure people have the tools they need. There still is a part of that that's important within the CIO role. But what's becoming even more important, in my opinion, is the strategic nature of the role and the, the integration of business and technology and the organization itself, as well as strategy. So uh, that that's my take on it. I think it's it's uh, that's what makes it such a cool role. But it's also why so many CIOs struggle is because it is a difficult, it's a very difficult role, in my opinion. Absolutely. Yeah. As Rudwan says, it, it can be a very lonely role, <laughs> you know, um, to to be in in, in that role. Um, it's kind of funny that you mentioned that I, I wrote a blog a few weeks back about why the IT department shouldn't exist anymore. And you know me, I like those shock and awe headlines to get people right. kind of talking I, about I it. it. Like, oh, like thank it. you. And and uh, one of the comments on my LinkedIn page was like, who's going to keep the lights on if we don't have an IT department? <laughs> but that migration from a cost center, all seriousness, into an actual value add to the organization, it is quite a transition. And, and I like what Tosholo Fellow said about um, the need for a universal language, not just an IT acronym based, very technical focus. I liked his story about how he went in and thought he just crushed his presentation, his first executive presentation, and then realized that nobody had any idea what he said. And that's why nobody asked him any questions because they just wanted to move on to the next more business focused piece of that. 
Is that something you see within kind of the digital transformation of needing all of those different stakeholders across the business? Do you kind of have to coach those CIOs or those more technical roles to kind of speak the universal language of the organization? Yeah, I mean, you have to kind of meet your internal customers or stakeholders where they are, and most of them are not entrenched in the world of technology. So if you come in hot with a bunch of techie speak and, you know, you're talking about, um, you know, philosophical debates about, you know, um, different programming languages or, uh, you know, what's the best BI tool out there and starting to get to data lakes and data warehouses and stuff like that. That's not what the average business person wants to talk about or, or understands, even if they do want to talk about it. So it's more important to really start with the business and under, understanding their language, understanding their needs, learning their language, speaking their language. Then you then you introduce tech, technology concepts or opportunities to enable whatever that you know those learnings might show. But I think the the problem or the the challenge with CIO roles is you you do have to have a technical competency, some sort of minimum technical competency. But too often the CIOs are so technical that they lead with the technology. They come in with their technological beliefs that may or may not align with what the business needs are and, and more often than not do not are not well understood by the business. So I, I, I think it's a great point that you bring up. Yeah, that is interesting because they kind of talked about the skill sets of this modern CIO and none of them were technical. And that's that's something that I find really interesting is is the ability to be a strategic partner and a main executive leader to work and negotiate and network across the business to create impact. None of those have to do with coding or software or anything like that. So I, I think it's interesting that that was something that they had said was, you know, a main need for a modern CIO. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, uh, I found it interesting, too. I think my biggest closing factor and why I said, you know, I'm going to call Peter every morning just so he can like hype me up is, is he had said, you know, what a time to be alive within this um, technology revolution that we're going through. Obviously, we've seen such change within the last 20 years, not just for the CIO, but just for business technology in, in general. It truly is the lifeblood of the organization as, as opposed to uh, where it used to be more of just a siloed, hey, I'll fix your computer type of guy. Um, so I, th I think it's it's a very exciting time, but also a, a time to engage experts, engage coaches, engage other people within the community that can kind of help CIOs have that full holistic view um, outside just of the technical space in order to do that. Um, and I highly recommend you connect if you're interested in CIO more information, connect with Ridwan on um, LinkedIn because he does a ton of content around what it means to be a modern CIO and how to be successful in a technology leadership role. Yeah. Yeah. He is a great one to connect with as are a lot of the panelists that were on that, that discussion, oh, yeah. but, but Ridwan is a good one who, who he, who's somewhat of a, CIO whisperer. I can't remember if I stole that from you or if I heard that from someone else. I don't that, know. It I'm going like to take credit for it. I'm going to take credit for it. I don't <laughs> think I said it, but I'll, uh, yes, absolutely. I yeah, said it. I stole sure. it from someone. Someone on our team said it and I stole it. So I'll, I'll give you credit for now. <laughs> but uh, well, they're good. Well, thanks for that that conversation and that that sort of debrief on the, the panel discussion. And again, where, where can people find that in the other Stratosphere sessions if they want to go watch that one again or any of the other sessions we did for that? 
event? Yes. Yeah, so for EMEA and APAC Digital Stratosphere, you are um, welcome to go to our website and put in um, the registration. It's free of charge and you'll get the YouTube replays right delivered to your inbox, as well as in the thank you messaging on the page. And if you want to see our bigger Stratosphere event, um, that's available on our YouTube page as well, as well as stratosphere2022.com. Great. Well, good. We'll be sure to check that out and love to hear everyone's feedback here uh, once they've had a chance to, to digest this episode as well as uh, some of that other Stratosphere content if, if you're interested in it. So I uh, want to thank you, Kyler, for another great episode. I uh, want to thank the audience and all the panel panelists and guests that we had on the show today. Thank you for all being here and being part of the show. Really appreciate it. You can find new episodes every Wednesday, including next Wednesday, you'll find another episode. So be sure to check us out there. And uh, hope you have a great week in the meantime, and we'll see you next time on Transformation Ground Control. Take care.